You were also connected with the CBS radio workshop. Yeah, I forgot for a while. that. That was a really great experience. New York decided, since radio was kind of fading, maybe we could make a splash and bring back the Columbia workshop, which had been a big hit in its day. I mean, it's a big creative hit or critical hit under the aegis of Norman Corwin and people like that. One of the nice things that happened to me was that I had loved radio as a kid. I had listened to it all the time, and it was sort of a dream of mine to someday write for radio. I didn't know it, but I was driving down Sunset Boulevard past Columbia Square. I'd just been discharged from the Navy, and I saw this big sign that said, CBS Radio, Columbia Square, and I said, my God, someday I'd like to work there. That's my ambition. And nine years later, I was vice president of the company in charge of programs, so that was my ambition fulfilled. Now, the reason I wanted to work there was because Norman Corwin was there. Norman was not only the poet, but the poet laureate of radio. And when I got that $55 a week job, Cran Chamberlain said, that's your office. And I walked a few steps away, and here was this office with a big wooden plaque on it saying, Norman Corwin. And I said, don't ever take that plaque off. So that was my office. I was thrilled. I've told Norman that story, of course, several times. I'm sure he's been here, hasn't he? Yes. Marvelous fellow. When the twilight is gone ah. And no songbirds are singing ah. When the twilight is gone ah. You come into my heart While I pray My Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 115. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, it's 1956, and radio's days as America's chief entertainment medium are over. However, with more Americans driving radio-equipped cars than ever before, dramatic radio is far from dead. We'll focus on one of the last experimental programs on the air, the CBS Radio Workshop, and the man at its Hollywood helm, William Frug. We'll listen to episodes, hear interviews with men and women known and unknown, and find out why this show was so critically acclaimed in its day. With the world far away And your lips close to mine If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is the Platters version of My Prayer, the number one hit in 1956. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups. Slash the Wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, a new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 in New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the Wallbreakers. The end of my 
If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. When the Columbia Workshop first took to the air on Saturday, July 18, 1936 at 8 p.m., network radio was 10 years old. The industry spent the previous generation grappling with its outgrowth from wireless telegraphy, with whether radio would be a commercial government or public entity, and once it was in the hands of the networks, with what should air. Radio was still a crude entertainment medium. Band shows and vaudeville-style comedy dominated the dial. The Major Bowes Amateur Hour was the highest-rated show, and NBC's dual red and blue networks aired eight of the country's top ten programs. Opposite the premiering Columbia Workshop, New York's other big stations, WEAF, WJZ, and WOR, aired concerts. But CBS's owner, William Paley, felt that if radio was to become a legitimate art form, it would have to develop its own actors, writers, directors, and musicians. He was convinced that well-written programming would come to lead American entertainment and was willing to eat short-term costs for long-term profits. The first thing I had to do when I got over here was to organize the company and to change the program schedule altogether. We were getting no place with what we had and start to build an organization, which funnily enough was not very easy to do. And uh, when I got to New York, I had difficulty hiring people. I didn't sit down and say, this isn't my program for radio, so what I think it ought to become. But I got educated to its potentials and uh, little by little started to evolve a philosophy and a plan. In those days, nobody uh, was making radio sets. There were no brand names. If you wanted one, you had to get a hold of a technician who knew how to put one together. And that's what I did, and I bought my first crystal set. And then would sit around until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning trying to get KDKA in Pittsburgh. Or, and there was a station in Kansas City, I think I got once or twice, which is very exciting. But even before I got into it as a business, I, I saw it as a bit of magic, as a medium that was able, I thought, at some future time to communicate with all the people in the country and all the people in the world. And what a fantastic thing this was. The Columbia Workshop had the freedom to fail, because of which it advanced the dramatic medium in new directions. It was responsible for furthering the careers of people like Irving Reese, Betsy Toothill, Norman Corwin, William N. Robeson, Minerva Pius, Burgess Meredith, William Spear, Charles Vanda, Robert Trout, Bernard Herman, Irwin Shaw, and Orson Welles. Reese became one of the workshop's earliest directors. Jack Johnstone knew him well. You mentioned Irving Reese, yes, who Irving. was more than just a sound effects man later on in radio. Well, he was an engineer there yeah, engineer. at CBS, staff engineer, and an excellent one. He was the Buck Rogers engineer for a long time until he came out here to the coast as a picture director. A very talented fellow. He was also connected for a long time with the Columbia Workshop. 
Yes. Well, you may not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he did other shows in New York. Precisely four minutes to twelve. The crowd is enormous. There might be ten thousand. There might be more. The whole square is faces. Opposite over the roofs of the mountains. It's quite clear. There are birds circling. We think they are kites by the look. They're very high. The tomb is off to the right somewhere. We can't see for the great crowd. Close to us here are the cabinet ministers. They stand on a raised platform with awnings. The farmers' wives are squatting on the stones. Their children have fallen asleep on their shoulders. The heat is harsh. The light dazzles like metal. It dazes the air as the clang of a gong does. It is one minute to twelve now. There is still no sign. They are still waiting. No one doubts that she will come. No one doubts that she will speak, too. Three times she has not spoken. Now it is twelve. Now they are rising. Now the whole plaza is rising. Fathers are lifting their small children. The plume fans on the platform are motionless. There's no sound but the shuffle of shoe leather. Now even the shoes are still... Perhaps the single most famous program the workshop ever produced was Archibald MacLeish's fall of the city. It is strange to see such throngs so silent. An allegory on the rise of fascism. It broadcast from New York's 7th Regiment Armory on April 11, 1937. The play was directed by Reese. William N. Robeson remembered that night, which was partially responsible for catapulting Orson Welles to national fame. Listen, that is she... She's speaking. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was only seven years. The golden age of radio. At this time, we were trying to find out how to do it. We were were learning skills. We were sharpening and honing our abilities. If you saw, good heavens predating the War of the Worlds by a year when Irving Reese did The Fall of the City in 37, spring of 37, The Fall of the City by Archibald McLeish, at first played with one of America's outstanding poets, a man who was so impressed by the medium of radio that he submitted to Irving Reese in the Columbia Workshop a verse play for radio. And who directed that? Irving Reese with all of the directorial staff of CBS assisting him. We'll take a master. There will be shouting men, blood after. Yeah, that was a mammoth Earl production. Earl McGill, Brewster Morgan, myself, Bill Spear, all assisting. Orson Welles' narrator, Burgess Meredith, the chief orator. Names that we conjure with now were just kids then. Yeah, Orson Welles was probably about 22, 23 at the time. 22 and 37, 23 at the time. And then you uh, use a big mammoth studio or you rented a a national guard hall or something to get special Uh, effects. 7th Regiment Armory on Park Avenue. So that was uh, remote. Uh, It was done live, the whole show. Yeah, it was done live, but it was remote from the armory. And that was to get the effect of the crowd or something? What Irving wanted to get was an outdoor perspective, dead air, outdoor, no reverb. He put his cast in this vast armory. Now, my responsibility was crowd direction. We had a crowd of 150 people. The crowd was a character in the play as the Greeks wrote for the chorus. They had no words, but they had reactions. And I was the cheerleader for the crowd. But to limit that, to control a small orchestra, but with very piercing primitive instruments, I mean, with that woodwinds and tambours and so on. To control that, to control the narrator, Wells worked in an isolation booth, which were quite new in those days. All of this to give an impression of great space without reverberation. Because Irving was a genius. 
this kind of conception. Unheard of in those days, unheard of today. What television producer gives a damn about sound? They pump all this $250,000 production through a four-inch speaker. Masterless men, when shall it be? Masterless men will take a master. What has she said to us? When shall it be? New York Times selected it as the outstanding broadcast of 1937. Time magazine said it proved radio was science's gift to poetry and poetic drama. Through a series of serendipities, somebody at CBS heard me and thought that I would be an interesting addition to their staff. They engaged me as a director not knowing that my chief interest was writing. And so I parlayed those talents and became my own producer as well. And in very short time, I was able to latch on to some opportunities that found my programs getting attention in the national publications, Time and other magazines, and there I was on my way. When I went to CBS as a director, I began, for the first few months, I directed the work of other people. Mm -hmm. I did some adaptations, a very minor character. More or less learned the network console. Norman Corbin was hired by CBS in April of 1938. For the next three years, he honed his craft on shows like Words Without Music, The Pursuit of Happiness, So This Is Radio, and Forecast. In 1941, he was tasked with taking over the workshop for 26 weeks. These plays are today known as 26 by Corwin. They range from whimsy, to romance, to high drama, to coming-of-age tales. He had a nation of fans, one of whom was then 21-year-old Ray Bradbury. I fell in love with the work of Norman Corwin when I was 19 years old. I remember tuning in a CBS Columbia Workshop program on a Sunday in 1939 without knowing what I was listening to. And I heard a uh, half-hour experiment in sound, sending sound around the world, trying all kinds of experiments with sound and vibrations and what have you. And when the program was over, I listened for the name, and the name was Norman Corwin. Well, it was instant love, and then in the succeeding years, up through 41, 44, 46, I listened to Columbia Presents Corwin and fell madly in love with this director-writer-producer, the greatest director-writer-producer in the industry of radio. interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor and Manila on December 7th, at the behest of President Roosevelt, Corwin penned a play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. Entitled We Hold These Truths, 
It was broadcast on December 15th and simultaneously heard on all four networks. 60 million people tuned in. It was at that time the largest rating share of any dramatic program ever. The name Billing was tremendous. From there on, it became the following series was 26 by Corwin, and then there was Columbia Presents Corwin, and there were two of those. By 1944, at only 33 years old, Corwin had free reign over his productions. The workshop essentially became branded as Columbia Presents Corwin. What's that, operator? All right, wait a minute now. Here's the 20 cents. Hello, Pa? This is Eddie. I'm at camp. I say I'm at the camp. Yeah. I've been waiting in line two hours to make this call, Pa. Huh? I'm fine, Pa. How are you? Am I okay and Beanie? Ah, that's good. Look, Pa, listen. Here's why I'm calling. I'm going to be home over the 4th. Yeah. Two-day pass. No, 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 no. By train. I'll get in around dinner time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, Pa, a lot of guys are waiting to make calls, so I better hang up. Uh-huh. Okay, I see you Monday night. Bye. Columbia presents Corwin. On Independence Day 1944, the workshop broadcast home for the fourth. In this play, two brothers are away at war. One gets a two-day pass to see his family and fiancé. When he gets home, Eddie, his parents, and his kid sister share dinner together. Eddie's father has been waiting for an important telegram all day. Well, no wonder you're not hungry, please. Oh, eating cookies all afternoon. Well, I made the cookies especially for Eddie, and I had to taste them to see if they were good. Didn't mm-hmm. I see you with some only human? Well, that's, that's open to some debate. I, <laughs> I don't think humans sit that way at meals. No. Orangutans, maybe, but not humans. What's orangutan? A sergeant. Uh, oh, Eddie. <laughs> incidentally, Eddie, I, I met Bill Gargan today. Oh, how is Bill? Oh, he's fine. Lieutenant. Got ten days furlough before going overseas. Says he might drop in to dinner. Good, I'd like to see him. Hmm, when are you going to see Rita? Hmm. Well, she doesn't get off work till 8, and then she's coming over. Oh. Aren't you married, Rita, Eddie? I would if I were. Ma, would you sit down? I'll bring in the coffee. No, sir, you stay where you are. Good idea. Home for a day and a half, and he wants to wait on the table. Right. I hope you, Ma. That's a good girl, Beanie. Oh, I do it all the time. Have a cigar, Eddie? No, thanks. I'll smoke my pipe. Uh, how many of these things do you smoke a day? No, about seven or eight. Mm, that's too many. You don't like to see you smoke so much. Yes, Father. Okay, son. See that you cut down. <laughs> Good. Well, how do you think things are going in the invasion, Ed? Oh, I think they're going fine now. This new offensive that started in the West with the taking of Minsk and our, our secured beachhead. Sure, but I, I don't see how it can last. That great work, Ed. Great work. They're certainly doing a grand job. There's a sergeant in my company who's had some people come back overseas. Did you hear from Mr. McCausland? No, I'm expecting a wire from him tonight. Careful, dear. You stay the cream, Beanie. Well, why'd you phone so far, Ma? Say, Pa, what did Jim say in his letter? Oh, it's a fine letter. Show it to you after dinner. Gee, it's a swell letter. Jim sent home a picture of him standing with a British girl in uniform. Uh, uh, I'm glad your brother Jim isn't in the fighting in Normandy. Mm, I'll bet he's not glad. Well, he's doing his part. They need good meteorologists at the bases in England. Two or three? Thousands of them. No, I mean how many lumps of sugar? Oh. One. 
Say, take a look at the little finger, will you? Very fancy. Where did you learn to drink tea like that, Jeannie? The movie? Lady uh-huh. to Haslam drinks tea like that? <laughs> the farm oh, that's probably farm. your telegram. No, I think it's Rita for me. Well, maybe it's Olivia to Haslam for me. No, it's probably for me. It's probably for me. Wait a minute. Yeah, this is me. Hey, Jeannie. Yeah. You know me, Paul? Take a call. Sally, do I know Sally? This is good for at least half the nice. Half the... Beanie, please limit your call to five hours. Now, you used to be just as bad on the phone with Rita. Yes, but Rita didn't live next door. (laughs) More coffee, Edward? No, no, thanks, Mom. You, Dad? Yes, thanks. All right. Hey, get a load of that edifying phone conversation, will you? That's all the way. Listen, listen. Incidentally, what do you think about my marrying Rita before I'm sent overseas? Well, son, uh, do you love her? Well, sure I do. But you see, I- I've just been wondering whether, well, the war being what it is, you know, uncertain and... Wondering, I'm kidding myself into thinking that I ought to get married now instead of waiting and... Well, and if you have to think about it, then I don't surrender to get married. Oh, is that so? Well, you thought about it long enough before you married me. You call six years long? Edward, if you want to get married, then I say... Oh, that's probably Rita at the door. Well, maybe my telegram. No, no, I'll go. Hello, you. Rita. You're looking well, Edward. So are you. Ask me in, darling. Oh, come here. You're full of lipstick. It's all right. Mark of honor. Here's my handkerchief. All off? Yes. Let's go inside. made Rita have some dessert and coffee. Beanie was still on the telephone, of course, until Pa made her hang up because he was expecting a wire from somebody. And then the folks, you know how they are, they figured Rita and me hadn't seen each other for a while, so they sent Beanie to bed and then announced they hadn't been out in the air all day and they simply had to go for a walk. So Rita and I went in the living room and I turned on the radio. Mr. Herbert Gates, Jr., reading his prize-winning paper entitled, What the Fourth of July Means to Me. Mr. Gates. Tomorrow is the Fourth of July. It is our National Day of Independence and is celebrated wherever Americans are or whatever they are doing. July 4th, 1944 or July 4th, 1776. The American people have always celebrated this day. And that will give you some idea of how important it is. Get something else. What good American is not thrilled at the sight? Yes. I sure miss the radio at camp. I don't get a chance to hear it much either with my job the way it is. I suppose. Did you by any chance hear the lonesome train a couple of months ago? No. What's that? A new song by, about Lincoln. No, I didn't hear it. 
It was pretty good. Too bad you missed it. Yeah. Did you miss me? What do you think? What do I think? Yeah. I think that you're more wonderful than I imagined. Imagined? Yes. You want to know something? I used to think about you. I used to imagine you every day. Every night. I, I, I'd take your picture out when I was alone. I'd look at it. I didn't turn up in the wall because I almost didn't want to share it with anybody. I... Oh. I love you, Rita. Do you really? Of course I do. Are you as mad to be with me as, as I am to see you? <laughs> yes, Miss Schieffer. And you still want to marry me? Yes. Then why don't we get married before you go overseas? Well, it's like I said before. What did you say before? Well... Now, supposing I go in and get shot up, so you've got an invalid husband on your hand. Just suppose I'm killed and, and you're a widow. All right, suppose I'm lost or something. I'm reported missing. Ed, that's silly. You know I love you enough to face up to anything that might happen. Darling, is it that you're afraid to marry me? Is it that you're not sure you love me? Don't be afraid to tell me if that's how you feel. No, no, that's silly. I do love you. Oh, me. Well, it's only that I'm... I'm kind of hit on the subject, I guess. I, I... I just got the kind of a conscience that simply won't let me... Oh, no, don't look like that, darling. I... I I'm all right. Sweetheart, let's not talk about it, huh? Let's just be glad to be together. It's so long since I've seen you. Yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> As was natural, the family and friends argue about the merits of war and what will come after. Corwin's timeless dialogue exposed every emotion Americans were feeling. We must have been sitting there on the sofa for about a half hour, and then we heard voices out on the porch. And we figured the folks must be back in their walk, so we went out and we joined them. They were talking with Bill Goggins, who had met them on their way up the street. Pa was deep in an argument with Bill. I know what I'm talking about, Bill. I fought in the last one. It was the same thing then. They said it was a war to end war and so on and so forth, but it wasn't anything of the kind. It's the same thing today, all over again. Well, I disagree with you, Mr. Eakin. It's an entirely different war. In in, in the hey, first place... What's going on here? Well, hello, Eddie. Well, how are you? Fine, I'm glad. Gosh, you know Rita, don't you? Yes, yes of course. Well, how are you, dear? What oh. are you doing? I'm working in a machine and tool factory now. Oh, oh so don't let's interrupt this dogfight. Carry on, gentlemen. Oh, well, we weren't arguing. It's just that Bill here seems to think it contains human nature. No. No, I don't believe that's an issue at all, Mr. Eakin. If, uh, if anything, in, uh, people's instincts are against war. Was it human nature that got Ed and me into uniform? No, it was draft board number 17. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't human nature. It was a very inhuman, unnatural thing. Like what? It was fascism, Ed. That's right, Bill. Why, sure. After all, uh, peace and not war is so much a part of human nature that 
Well, most of us just refused to believe that the fascists deliberately intended to make war. And we waited until it was almost too late. I still think we're going to have another war after this one. And so do I. Oh, Eddie, you don't. Sure I do. That's defeatist talk, if you ask me. Mr. Eakins, you mean you don't think anybody will have learned anything out of this war? No, I think it's exactly the same kind of war as the last one. Absolutely, I agree with my old man. Well, your old lady doesn't agree with your old man. I think we've made a lot of progress. Good for you. Such as what? Well, the Atlantic Charter and the Tehran Conference. I bet you don't even know what they stand for. How much do you want to bet, hmm? Oh, never mind, never mind. When you talk that way, you probably know. (laughs) Well, what do they stand for? The Tehran Agreement called for the big three to continue cooperating after the war. I ought to know that when I lectured to the East Side Women's Club about it. It says that... Britain, Russia, and we are planning for the day when all the people in the world can live free lives. Free from tyranny and, uh, well, if I remember the wording, uh, according to each one's varying desires and uh, his own conscience. Isn't that right, Mrs. Eaton? Correct. Oh, that all sounds fine, but when I tell you it's idealistic, it's, it's visionary. But what do you think? Look, none of the boys, Bill, that I know in the Army go for that idealism stuff, at least not in my outfit. Well, they do in my outfit. Listen, Bill, I've talked with a lot of the boys, including some who've been overseas, and the one thing they want to know is when do they get home? Sure, just as in the last war. Even our letters from Jim are full of it. Oh, soldiers in every war have wanted to go home. Certainly, if you want an example of human nature, that's one, to want to go home. But there's a, there's a big difference in this war. Oh, you hear of men wanting to come home, sure, but you don't hear of any desertions on account of it, as you did in other wars. The American soldier knows he's got to win before he gets home, or else his home won't be worth coming back to. So what's that got to do with the Tehran Conference? What's that got to do with it? Yeah. Everything. What do you suppose our men are fighting for anyway? Oh, ideals, I suppose. Oh, chicken and every hot and dot pot. That's a fine ideal for a young American. Look, we're fighting to get it over with, and that's all. Look, I don't begin to understand your attitude about idealism. You you and your father seem to think that it's a little embarrassing to be found dead or alive with an ideal. Sure, sure, the terror and uh, agreement's visionary. But so was our Declaration of Independence. Did you ever stop to think of that? Supposing they sat around at Philadelphia 150 years ago making cracks about long hairs and visionaries. But that's different. The Declaration of Independence involved one country in 1776 and a terrible thing involved oh, a bunch of countries in another time. Of you. Well, we were practically 13 separate countries back in 1776. Where's your history? Well, I know. I, I hear certain people speak about the ideology of this war as though it was something extra. Uh, something you could throw away, uh, dispense with, if the going gets tough. Well, I think it's a heck of a lot more important than C-rations or K-rations or sometimes even ammunition. It's the whole heart and soul of fighting. And I've talked to a lot of G.I.s, too, and in my experience, it's hardly ever the men who do the fighting who sneer at the reasons why they're fighting. Yes, and the ones who sneer are mostly high-priced colonists who spend the rest of their time kicking about the income tax they have to pay. Sure. The only time the war comes home to them... Is when they get bounced off a plane because they don't have a priority. Uh, what papers do you read, Bill? Yeah, the same papers you read, sir. And I don't have to read the editorials to form my opinion. Just the main headlines and the text of the pieces and the communiques. I've been doing that right along. So have I, ever since Spain. Well, with me ever since Spain, sure. Yeah. Well, that's all very well. And I still say the men are fighting to get back to where we were before the Stinkham War. That's all they're fighting for. I think that's enough to fight for. We're not mad at anybody. Well, <laughs> look, Ed, 
Well, neither of us is on this lead to spend our time arguing. All I can say personally is that if I'm going to die in this war, I'd like it to be for an ideal. For something, something pretty awful special. And I think the promise of Terahan is, is that. I think the whole fact and the idea of the United Nations is something good and special. Now, wait a minute, Bill. Let's get back to where we were talking about, about the Declaration of Independence. Now, in the first We've place... We've never left it, Eddie. We've never left it. Tehran, the Charter, all these things, they're sort of the great-grandsons of stuff like the Declaration. Certainly. If a man writes a fine document 150 years ago, he's a hero, but he writes it today, he's a politician. Believe me, when I leave my family this trip, it'll be for the duration, maybe for a good deal longer. And if I'm not coming back, at least I want my people to have an insurance policy on my life. And the best policy I know about so far is the one the Allies wrote there at Terrahan. Yeah, yeah. And there's a captain in my company who talks like you, too, but nobody pays any attention to him either. Oh, Eddie, what a thing to say. I think you want to apologize to Bill. Oh, well, that's fine. No, 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 no. That's all right, Rita. Well, look, I've got to be getting along anyway, and that's as good a place as any to leave the discussion. Well, now, hold on, Bill. You no, no, it. don't you go, Bill. Please stay and have some tea with no, me. No, no, come no, on. really, really. I, 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 no, no. Come on, come no. on, Bill. And stay. We really love you, you know. I know. Even though we, we don't agree with you. Sure, Bill, I will. No, 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 really. Look, look, I must go. I, I'm late now. I told Ed and I'd drop around now, so... Well, good night, everybody. And I hope that before I go, we get a chance... Oh, George, look. Here comes the boy with your telegram from McCausland. Where? Why, he's right there, crossing the street. Oh, it's about time he let me know. Nearly a whole day to late with that thing. George W. Eakins live here? Yes. Telegram for you. Oh, I see. I'm there. Okay. Here you are. Thanks. If it doesn't get me those reservations, I'm just going to... Look, it's all right. Well, what's he say? Personal question. What is it, Pa? What's the matter, George? Here, give it to me. The War Department regrets to inform you that your son, James Trish Egan's, is missing. But he's a meteorologist. Well, how can he be missing? He's stationed in England. That's... That be right. There must be a mistake here. Maybe it's the wrong... Jim... But it just is missing. Lots of guys who are missing later. I, I'm going inside. Excuse me, everybody. I'm going inside. Yeah, yeah. Let me help you, mother. Yeah. I'm sorry, Eddie. Believe me, I'm sorry. Ed, Oh, Jim's all right. He's missing, that's all. Lots of guys who are missing later turn up. Don't they, Bill? Don't they turn up later? Sure, Eddie. Lots of them. Sure. Jim isn't dead, I know that. You can't kill a guy like Jim. He'll turn up. Of course he will. Sure. You're here with us right now, Bill. Can you stay for a little while? Yes, do stay, Bill. 
Of course. Bill, I... Come in the house. Come on in. I'll make something to drink for you. The workshop resumed after the war. Corwin opened it again on February 2nd, 1946 with Homecoming. It was a bittersweet slice of life about a G.I. who comes home to the farm and the adjustments his family would have to make. The Columbia Workshop returns to the air. Radio's foremost laboratory for new writers and production techniques begins a new series of broadcasts to be heard each week at this time. President and Director of Programs of the Columbia Broadcasting System, Mr. Davidson Taylor. A great many of us at the Columbia Broadcasting System have a profound affection for the Columbia Workshop, not only because of the distinguished productions which it did during the five years it was on the air between 1936 and 1941, but also because of the remarkable talents which have first been brought to public attention by the Workshop. We are happy that the stations affiliated with CBS share our affection for the Columbia Workshop. And the resumption of the Columbia Workshop broadcasts is due in large part to the demand of the CBS affiliates that it return to the air. We think there will be general agreement that it is good not only for Columbia, but also for radio to have the workshop on the air again. We hope that the new series will stimulate the same interest in better writing and better production methods that the old series did. Appropriately, today's script is called Homecoming. The author is a young Canadian, Norman Williams of Toronto, and it is the first radio script by him ever to be broadcast in the United States. This unknown author's work is produced and directed by the most distinguished and best-known alumnus of the workshop, Mr. Norman Corwin. It is now my pleasure to welcome you, our audience, to the Columbia Workshop and to open its doors again to the creative men and women of radio. The Columbia Workshop presents Homecoming by Norman Williams, produced and directed by Norman Corwin. The original musical score is by Lynn Murray. Ted, I got a draft on my neck. Sure, Ma. Never felt it before. You feeling good lately, Ma? Uh-huh. Maybe you need a rest. Huh. Maybe you've been out in the hot sun that's addled your head. I was only wondering. I want you to be sick. Well, I'm not sick. I ain't a gonna be. If what you're trying to say is that I'm an old woman, well, you just stop and recollect you're as old as me. Yes, and a bit more. I know. Seems a woman's different. Stronger, you mean. More grit, more guts. Wears longer, that's what different. Okay, Ma. Oh, don't fret so much. That's a sign of old age, fretting. <laughs> oh, you got him that time, Ma. You sure know how. You sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Always did, son. Never could have lived with the old cuss this long unless I did. Oh, that wasn't no draft anyway. 
thing is, Pa's got this old buggy tearing along so fast, 28 miles an hour. I seen them big trains go by in the city, and I swear none of them makes this kind of speed. Gosh, no. Seen them in the city. Ooh, not so fast, Pa. I can't stand it when you go so fast. You wait till you got a right to criticize. You wait till you make that big pile of money and got your big limousine, and then you can criticize. Oh, Pa. Right now, you're riding in my car. It's good enough for you to ride in okay, then you can ride. As soon as it ain't, then you got your two feet. Well, I was only fooling. I didn't mean no harm. Oh, Ted didn't mean nothing. I don't want no arguments today. Just ride along in peace. Okay, Ma. This is a special day. Got a right to be glad. I ain't arguing. I'm just saying what I think. Man's got a right to do that. Special day or no special day. Well, that's all right now. Let's ride along in peace. Thought your wife Millie would have come today, Ted. Appears to me she would have. Being one of the family now. I told Ma why she didn't come. Uh, Millie feels uncomfortable coming out, Pa. Don't like people looking her up and down. Now, th- that's it. She's mocked. People are gonna look. Nothing wrong in that, I can see. Well, now, she don't think there's anything wrong in it. She, she just feels that way about coming out. Besides, it's hot today. The second run was brief. The workshop's final broadcast was January 25th, 1947. After it merged with Once Upon a Tune for 13 weeks, William Paley had returned from war and instituted the package program initiative. CBS was piloting new shows, and Once Upon a Tune closed on April 26, 1947. escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Radio represented, in those days, to me at least, the freedom to fail, and we could try things, we could experiment. Sometimes we'd fall on our face, but every now and then we'd do something wonderful. And I think that's the essence of any creative process. One has to have the freedom to fail. Jim Frug was born on May 26, 1922 in Brooklyn, New York. He was adopted and grew up first in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then Tulsa, Oklahoma. He graduated from the Missouri School of Journalism in 1943 before enlisting in the U.S. Navy. After he was discharged in 1946, he found himself living with friend and fellow writer, E. Jack Newman. My first radio job was freelancing 
for a show called Rocky Jordan on the Columbia Pacific Network. That was the $90 a script job. $90? Yeah, big money. What year was that? That was about 1946. Well, that was pretty high, uh, that was, high pay. No, the yeah. network shows were paying for a script at that time about $300. Oh. This was because it was a regional network. We got 90 But I was grateful because in those days you could live on $90 a week. Did you do one script a week, or were you likely to do more than that? No, I think I did about a half dozen of them. A week? No, no, on a freelance basis, oh, not every week. Larry Roman was writing a bunch of them. E. Jack was writing a few of them, and uh, it was spread around the staff. I was working for CBS Radio Publicity for a while, writing feature stories. In 1948 and 49, he freelanced for CBS's West Coast Network, writing scripts for Rocky Jordan. Jeff Regan and The Whistler. The head of CBS Pacific Network writing staff, we had a staff of like eight people named Cran Chamberlain, said, how would you like to come over and be on staff? $55 a week, and I grabbed it. So that was the, at that time, then that was the only show you were writing? That's right, I was writing Rocky Jordan and then Jeff Regan Investigator. I wrote a Whistler on the side for which I picked up another $200. And I wrote an escape, and I got about $400 for that, because that was full network, and a few of those. My name's Regan. I get 10 a day and expenses from a detective bureau run by a guy named Anthony J. Lyon. They call me the Lion's Eye. With Jack Webb as Jeff Regan, the Lion's Eye, stand by for hard-boiled action and mystery and thrilling adventure in tonight's story of the man who fought back. There was an obscure actor playing Jeff Regan by the name of Jack Webb. There was a, an executive in charge of the Columbia Pacific Network, of which this was one of their shows, George W. Allen, who was one of the more pompous characters I ever met couple of blocks long and only got there because the city planners had a few tons of cement left over from the Coliseum. And one day when I started writing this Jeff Regan thing every week, Jack Newman, my college roommate, who had talked me into becoming a writer, was alternate writer on the show. Oh, the place isn't much. A couple of chairs and a bed that comes out of the wall and a mattress that could pass itself off as a relief map of the high Sierras. George Allen said, um, your actor is demanding too much money. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, scale for a CPN show is $35 for a lead. I'm glad I found your home. Are you alone? What's the matter? Did you lose your voice? Just a precaution. And that's what they were paying Jack Webb. And Jack Webb was demanding $50. And George Allen said to me, he's got to go. It'll keep till morning. So that's why he was fired. And he had this little notion that he carried around with him. He wanted to do this radio show about real cops with sound effects that were real. And he got my friend Jim Mosier to write a script for it. And he took it to NBC because of George W. Allen, and it was Dragnet. Now, from Hollywood, Romance.
The first summer after high school graduation is a bright and wonderful time. Three long months of sun and sky and balmy nights and moonlight. It's a time to be young, summer is. And if it also brings romance, well, it's a time for that, too. But sometimes when the summer is over, a boy finds out he's more than three months older, a lot more. So now with Sam Edwards as Scott and Eleanor Tannen as Dana, we bring you transcribed Kathleen Height's charming story, Summer Song. Radio was a treasure to those of us who were in it. We had enough sense to enjoy it while we were doing it. We knew it was fun, and it sure as hell was I fun. I I'd wanted the job all my life. I'd hung around the country club since I was a kid, caddying and helping Dad work on the greens. But I sure never thought I'd get to be lifeguard there someday. Of course, winning cups in the state high school meets last winter didn't hurt any. And Dad didn't hurt any either. He'd been with the club for 25 years. The reason we had so much liberty, and we did, and had so much fun is because there were very few restrictions in radio. It had to do with economics. The cost of a half-hour sustaining radio show on CBS was $900 per half hour. I remember I had a budget for music, for original score, and for arrangements, uh, $150 to the whole ball of wax. And there was a young guy named Jerry Goldsmith who was a UCLA student studying to compose music. And he came to me and he said, Bill, I will do original scores for a series called Romance, a sustaining half hour, which was an anthology that had very little to do with romance, particularly just was anything we wanted to do. Oh, open for business yet? You're early, Mr. Masters. And Jerry said, I'll do everything for $50 a show. So Jerry got $50 a show and composed and conducted and arranged some of the most marvelous music and has, as you probably know, gone on to become, I think, our foremost composer of film scores, having been nominated for a few Oscars and won a number of Emmys. Speaking for all the directors, when I tell you we consider ourselves lucky to get you. One of the best composers in the world. He's purely a product of that freedom in radio where the budget was so little money they'd say, well, you might as well do it. Give it to George in the locker room. All right, sir. I'll do it before I leave tonight. Well, come to me any time you've got a problem, Scott. I'll do my best for you. Yes, sir. There wasn't much invested, you see. It's opposed to television, which today, when we spend a million dollars to make a pilot... The risks are so great, the economic risks, that the networks exercise total control over everything. But she needs some good instruction. There was a sense that television was going to take over, even in the late 40s when I started. And as a consequence, we were kind of in a medium that was slowly slipping away, and we knew it. But so we wanted to make the best of it. And most of us had no driving desire to get in television. We really didn't because we knew from friends who had done it that they weren't having the fun we were. Don't forget, we're nice people too. He spent the early 1950s in charge of the Hallmark Hall of Fame. The show began in the 1940s as Radio Reader's Digest, before rebranding as the Hallmark Playhouse until 1953. Uh, and then I started directing and producing my own shows, which was really fun. That was $150 a show to produce and direct it. It was very exciting. What are the shows that you produced and directed? 
Hallmark Hall of Fame for two years, Romance for about a year and a half, uh, something called Sunday Playhouse, which was a replacement for Hallmark after J.C. Hall pulled out, that finished that up about six months. I can't think of that. Oh, I, I did an escape. I did just an assortment of, a, I don't know, a couple. I wrote a couple hundred scripts and produced and directed about a hundred shows. Ladies and gentlemen, on Tuesday, November 16th, the radio and television networks and the newspapers of this nation made the following announcement. Lionel Barrymore, one of America's most revered and distinguished actors, the dean of the royal family of the American theater, died last night at the age of 76. With radio audiences leaving in droves for TV, the sponsor abruptly changed format on February 8, 1953. They brought in Lionel Barrymore to host True Stories of Americana. When Barrymore passed away in 1954, the Hall of Fame dedicated their November 21st show to his memory. Next in radio, I was doing uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame, which was a wonderful experience because the sponsor, J.C. Hall, just said, give me a quality show, Bill, whatever you want to do. And twice a year, Bert Oliver and I of the uh, advertising agency would take the Super Chief to Kansas City and we'd lay out programs we wanted to do. I changed the format of the show to put in current people instead of digging up people from the past. We stopped doing George Washington and Alexander Hamilton at last, and we did stories about Joe DiMaggio and Miller Huggins with Joe DiMaggio narrating, and we did Breaking the Sound Barrier with Chuck Yeager narrating the show. An incident from the life of George Gershwin with Ira Gershwin telling the story, and a story from the life of Damon Runyon with Gene Fowler. And so the ratings shot up. It became the second or third highest rated show in, in radio. But again, the investment was very little. I think it cost J.C. Hall probably 1200 a week for a sponsored network coast-to-coast -coast show with Lionel Barrymore as a host. Unfortunately, by March of 1955, fewer and fewer network shows were sponsored. Hallmark canceled the show. I think radio began its decline at the end of World War II with the development of television, probably late 40s, early 50s. Almost 1950 exactly when I would date it from. TV was taking over. What happened was just economics because the management of whom I was a part just said, your budget is cut, your budget is cut. Amos and Andy were brought back as disc jockeys. It was just economics. And gradually shows were just left out of the schedule. However, in 1955, there were 15 million radio sets produced, the most since 1948. There were now nearly 150 million radio sets in the U.S., out-of-home listening now equal TV viewing. During primetime hours, auto listeners added an additional 40% to at-home radio audiences. CBS wasn't ready to give up on radio drama just yet. In January, they launched three new shows, Indictment, Fort Laramie, and a revised CBS Radio Workshop.
is derailed and overturned on a curve minute speed in the curve is blamed for the disaster the engineer a veteran of the line said he was slowing the train and then blacked out hundreds of feet of track are ripped up as the two cars hurtle from the roadbed 29 die mostly servicemen and 142 are injured on sunday january 26th 1956 at 5:42 p.m a Santa Fe railroad train was rounding the sharp curve at the Redondo Junction just southwest of Boyle Heights, near Washington Boulevard and the Los Angeles River. The conductor blacked out. The train sped up to 69 miles per hour and derailed. 30 people were killed and more than 100 were injured. It was perhaps a metaphor for the direction society was moving. Both atomic and communist fears were rampant. Social norms, race relations and musical tastes were rapidly changing while divorce, alcoholism, and prescription medication was all on the rise. That Sunday, both Indictment and Fort Laramie debuted on CBS. The following Friday, January 27th, the revived CBS radio workshop took to the air with an adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Ladies and gentlemen, the distinguished author, Mr. Aldous Huxley. Brave New World is a fantastic parable about the dehumanization of human beings. In the negative utopia described in my story, man has been subordinated to his own inventions. Science, technology, social organization, these things have ceased to serve man. They have become his masters. A quarter of a century has passed since the book was published. In that time, our world has taken so many steps in the wrong direction that if I were writing today, I would date my story not 600 years in the future, but at the most 200. The price of liberty and even of common humanity is eternal vigilance. CBS Radio a division of the Columbia Broadcasting System and its 217 affiliated stations present the premier broadcast of the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight... Part one of two half-hour programs devoted to one of the world's most shocking and famous novels, Aldous Huxley's terrifying forecast of the future, Brave New World. We are proud to have Mr. Huxley as narrator for these broadcasts. Original music is composed and conducted by Bernard Herrmann. I had always loved Brave New World, and I got in touch with Aldous Huxley and asked him if he'd be interested in narrating a dramatized version of this. So I went over to his house in total awe. I'm going to meet this giant. And he turned out to be the loveliest man you could ever hope to meet. He invited me to lunch, and we had lunch every day at his house for a week while we just chatted about the book. We decided it would be two half hours. This is Aldous Huxley, and these are the sounds of the brave new world, of test tube and decanter of hissing injectors and gurgling blood substitute. The year is AF 632, 632 years after Ford. 
We are inside the London Hatchery and Conditioning Centre. And this is the fertilising room, an enormous laboratory where the temperature is never allowed to fall below 98.6. And here comes the Director of Hatcheries and Conditioning in person, bringing with him a group Tomorrow, of young students. Tomorrow you will be settling down to serious work. Today I just want to give you a general idea of things. Uh, these are the incubators, and here is the weak supply of over, kept at blood heat. Uh, come along, boys. Now here, we immerse the eggs into a warm bouillon containing free-swimming spermatozoa. Immersion continues until the eggs are all fertilised. Ah, and over here, here is where we bottle the alphas and betas. In short, gentlemen, the perfect process for manufacturing healthy babies. Are there any questions? Uh, sir, uh, will you explain the uh, Bakanovsky process? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, students, take this down. Bakanovsky's process. Where in olden times, one egg made one embryo which made one baby. Today, we've improved on all that. Now the egg will bud, will divide from eight to 96 buds, and every bud will grow into a perfectly formed embryo and every embryo into a mature baby, making 96 human beings grow where only one grew before. Progress. But uh, what advantage is it, sir? Uh, I mean... Uh... Oh, my good boy, can't you see? Where in olden times nature allowed us only to have twins or perhaps triplets or so, today we can create scores, yes, scores of identical individuals. We can manufacture men and women in uniform batches. Think of it. An entire factory staffed with the product of one single egg. 96 identical individuals working 96 identical machines. At last, society really knows where it stands. Remember, it was our Ford who gave us the concept of the assembly line when he was on Earth many centuries ago. And now, boys... We will go up to the bottling room where we shall see how we create each class of society. Alphas, betas, deltas, etc. Come with me. Where, Lenina? Oh, director. Oh, charming, charming. Ah. What are you injecting into our embryos today, my dear? Typhoid antitoxins? Yes, sir. Are you uh, busy this afternoon? Oh, not after five, sir. Good. Suppose we get together then on the roof. That would be fine. I've admired you for some time, Lenina. I'm looking forward to a closer acquaintance. Thank you, sir. And now, boys, we're off to the bottling room. The sound of artificial human life took three men and an engineer more than five hours to create. They used a ticking metronome, the beat of a tom-tom, bubbling water, an air hose, the mooing of a cow, a couple of boings, and three different wine glasses clinking against each other. The sounds were blended and recorded, then played backwards on air with a slight echo. Bernard Herrmann composed and conducted a slender musical score. Oh, you can trust the director to be the perfect gentleman. I saw him pat you. He wants me. You see? That shows what he stands for, the strictest conventionality. And it's about time you started belonging to someone else, my dear. But I like Henry Foster. We've only been with each other four months. Four months? Well, what would the district world controller say? You know how he disapproves anything intense or long-drawn... And it isn't as though there were anything painful or disagreeable about being with one or two other men besides Henry. After all, everyone belongs to everyone else. You're quite right, Fanny, as usual. Good girl. Fanny, do you know Bernard Marx? <gasps> Bernard Marx? Well, why not? Bernard's an Alpha Plus. 
Besides, he asked me to go to New Mexico, to the Savage Reservation with him. But his reputation... They say he doesn't like obstacle golf. Oh, they say, they say. And that he spends most of his time by himself alone. They say somebody made a mistake when he was still in the bottle. Thought he was a gamma and put alcohol into his blood substitute. That's why he's so stunted. Oh, what nonsense. Oh, very well, Lenina. It's your life, my dear. But I think you're heading for trouble. It was unlimited because... It was theater of the mind. It was, it's, as I, the only thing I wrote in radio that I'm proud of was the opening to CBS Radio Workshop, which says, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. We use that every week. Bill Conrad would come on booming that. But that's really what radio was about. You could say we're in Cairo. You could say we were in New York. You could say we're now, and sound effects did it for you. And actors who were so incredible that they could create any character instantly. The cast in those radio shows, probably the, some of the great actors As of all time. As a matter of time. fact, there is an area in our world where humans are still viviparous, still give birth to their children. The Savage Reservation in New Mexico. I uh, visited there once myself many years ago. Dreadful, filthy place. Naturally, civilization has improved. Friday, January 27, 1956, was cold and clear in New York. The headlines were occupied by a twin-engine Lockheed Ventura plane, which exploded over Long Island during a test flight. It killed all three people on board. The U.S. Court of Appeals upheld the United Automobile Workers' refusal to tell House Committee investigators whether fellow Unionists had been Communists in the distant past. The majority felt it was suspect to assume exposing people to public contempt could serve as an effective legislative method. Grace Kelly announced that she'd stop acting after her marriage to Prince Rainier of Monaco. Her last film, High Society, would premiere on July 17th. Well, today we're going to explain to you how to put down a linoleum floor. Hey, good idea. You know, uh, more and more people now are finding uh, both e economical and uh, a good deal of fun attached to doing things themselves. Uh, oh, yeah. Doing things with their hands, particularly you men who spend all week using your squashes. It's great relaxation to do some manual labor after a week of mental processes. And uh, I myself like to get down to a boatyard on the weekend and help bring in these old tubs and scrape the barnacles off the bottom and to paint the thing and everything. That's right. Now, uh, Bob here is here. Bob here is an expert at linoleum. Uh, what do you call it? Linoleum laying? Is that the? Well, yes, I suppose you could call it that. Application. The CBS Radio Workshop well, wasn't the only out. notable programming airing on the evening of January 27th. Well, at 5 p.m. from Mutual's WOR, the comedic duo of Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding signed on. They first appeared on radio in 1946 for WHDH in Boston. In July of 1951, they joined NBC's full network. They had two shows, one a daily morning and the other a 60-minute primetime show. 
but NBC bounced both programs around its schedule, and the shows had mediocre success. Would you hand me an army blanket? Yeah, here's They next appeared on Saturday mornings for NBC's Monitor, and in October of 1955, they joined Mutual for a 45-minute weekday disc jockey series. They mixed comedic spoofs around musical numbers. The show would air until September 20th, 1957. Oh, it's 25 feet. 12 long. and 13 are 25. Well, which would be the center, 12 or 13? Doesn't make any difference, either one. Could be 10 or 15, too, smart Alec. Yeah, 10 and 15. Are okay, well, I'll make the center of the floor 10. Uh-huh. Now, the other oh, way. Oh, there it goes again. Look, these are too smart. Hey, you know, kind of think of it, you're, you're not doing any work, are you? I mean, no, I don't notice no. one little I'm directing, drop of perspiration right? on your forehead. But it, look, it's this manual labor that. Uh, that uh, Brushes away all the cares of metal work and vision. A fiery horse with a speed of light, a clot of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. By January of 1956, The Lone Ranger was airing in repeats over NBC at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Brace Beamer starred with John Todd as Tonto. Fred Foy announced. A simultaneous hit TV series was airing on ABC. It starred Clayton Moore and was also announced by Fred Foy. The final radio repeat aired on May 25, 1956. The last new episode of the original TV series aired on September 12, 1957. What were your credentials before you started writing uh, One Man's Family, or two right there? What did you do before that? You were a young man at the time? Well, the show started in 32. I was a young man at 31. (laughs) I had been a newspaper man, both in Sacramento, on the old Union, which Bret Hart and Mark Twain contributed Mm -hmm. to. And then I came down and was on the copy desk of the San Francisco Chronicle for three, four years. And then I went to Seattle, on the Seattle Times. Mm -hmm. It was up there when I, we heard our first radio. Uh, It wasn't a show, it was a a boxing championship, and I've Mm -hmm. forgotten who was fighting. (laughs) But came back to San Francisco, and, and newspapers were folding awfully fast. So a friend of mine had a job over at NBC, and I went over and uh, was taken on a week-by-week basis to uh, see what I could do. I had written columns for papers, but I had done nothing in a dramatic form at all. One Man's Family, of course, was probably the longest-running serial drama on radio. When was the first broadcast? In 1932, in April of 1932. It ran uh, about 27 and a half years. One Man's Family, winner of 42 National Awards, a Carlton E. Morse creation. One Man's Family had been on the air since April of 1932, spanning nearly the entire history of network radio. One Man's Family, now in its 25th year, is dedicated to the mothers and fathers of the younger generation and to their bewildering offspring. It was the first show to speak frankly of the Kinsey Report on the diversity of sexual orientation, and one of the last to make the old-fashioned farmer seem contemporary. When Standard Brands dropped it in 1949, 
75,000 letters flooded NBC in its support. It was reorganized as a quarter-hour serial on June 5, 1950. This episode aired at 7.45 p.m. Eastern over NBC. So, having heard the steps squeak at 5.45 this morning, Paul, I know exactly how much sleep you've had, which isn't enough for anybody. And therefore, I deserve the train? <laughs> Mother thought so. Lift the lid there and see what you have. Aha! Scrambled eggs and my favorite sausages. Oh, no, not scones. And wild blackberry jam from the Sky Ranch. <laughs> good, good. Now, what's this about Cousin Consider? I talked to Joan this morning. She says he's flown back to Hawaii. Yes, and he forgot to sign his new will, you know. Oh? Utterly forgot it. Pinky sent it on to him, care of the Surfrider Hotel. We hope he's going back to the Surfrider. Anyway, Pinky mailed it in spite of the fact that he's now cut off with a dollar. Oh, I'm so proud of Pinky, I could be insufferable. <laughs> no, blame you. Uncle Paul, are you decent? Come on up, Joan. He's having breakfast. Hi there. Sorry, I thought you said you'd be dressed and downstairs. They decided to spoil me with a tray this morning. <laughs> and I'll bet you deserve it. Ooh, scones, too. How about a bite? Here, open. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I'll go get you some of your own. Oh. oh, no thanks, Aunt Hazel. I've had breakfast. Oh, isn't it a glorious day? What's everybody going to do? Well, I'm going to phone Pinky, and if he isn't busy, I shall go in town and see if he'll take me to lunch. He needs cheering up. He must feel terribly bewildered. Because I know for a fact that CZ simply adores him. Pinky's punch drunk. That's the only word to describe it. One Man's Family would air until May 8, 1959, with Father Barber still brooding over the troubles of his grandson, Pinky. It was the end of a 27-year slice of life. Any notion what he was doing to him. He was just trying everything he could think of to get a traveling companion. Pinky made a very odd remark to me the other night. He said if he ever disappeared, to tell Greta he loved her more than he was ever able to say. Disappeared? That's an odd remark. During the Johnny Dollar days, which we recorded out here in Hollywood, Bob McKenney for a long time was my engineer. Excellent engineer. Do you know Bob? Mm. We did not edit those tapes. We recorded the show just as though they were live. A few actors resented this in the very beginning, but... Most of them got to like it because it got much, much better performances. If we got a third of the way through a program and somebody fluffed, we went back to the beginning, started all over again. But as I say, it got good performances because everybody was on his toes. As a result, we had no editing problems on the Johnny Dollar show. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. This is Dr. Gorey. You left word for me to call? Yes. Wonder if I could see you sometime today, Doctor. What about? About the Abbott matter. No. I'm kind of busy today. I talked to you once, Mr. Dollar. What else can I say to you? That's up to you, Doctor. Entirely up to you. I can tell you this. I have reason not to believe what you said before. Now, look here, young man. I have reason to believe that Duke Red wasn't destroyed exactly the way it was reported. I'm not going to listen to any tall tales about a horse. And maybe you'll listen to one about a man. What? Thomas Warner, Duke Red's trainer, is missing. I've turned the matter over to the police. Oh. Oh. Yeah. How about it, Dr. Gorey? Do we talk? All right, Mr. Dollar. At 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time over CBS, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, took to the air from KNX in Hollywood, starring Bob Bailey and directed by Jack Johnstone. It was the final episode of the five-part Duke Red Matter. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. 
Dollar had been brought in by Niles Pearson of the Universal Adjustment Bureau. A prized racehorse, Duke Red, had been euthanized under suspicious circumstances. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. Location, San Pietro, California. To the Universal Adjustment Bureau, Universal Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Duke Red matter. Expense account item 8, 90 cents. Breakfast for me and coffee for Constable Tad Polk, San Pietro Police Department. Yes, sir. I'm glad we could get together this morning, Miss Dollar. You know, I thought a long time about you reporting Tom Warner missing. Well, maybe I'm worried for nothing. But I do know I don't like the circumstances of his disappearance. You using me, Mr. Dollar? What? You know I got a police force of four men. We can't conduct any sizable investigation into a disappearance. Just aren't equipped for it. I thought it might be something like that. I don't want to be spending civic money to satisfy some doubts in the mind of your organization. It's not my province, Mr. Dollar. Look, the man's missing. Nobody knows where he is. He didn't leave a trace. He did leave a month's pay behind him. He left after an argument with Abbott. Nobody saw him leave that farm, Constable. No one knows where he is now. Now, just hold on to your britches, boy. I didn't say I wouldn't do anything about it. Huh? I'm going out and have a talk with Ben Abbott, Mr. Dollar. I've known him for a long time. Think maybe I can find out something about this. We'll see what happens there first, then make some plans. That sounds fair enough, Constable. Where can I get in touch with you in case I have to? I'm going over to see Dr. Gorey this morning. After that, I'll be at my hotel. Fine. Dollar? Yeah? You think something might have happened to Tom Warner? Yeah, Constable. I sure do. Expense account item nine, $2.50. One long-distance phone call to Hartford. I explained the matter of Tom Warner and requested Niles Pearson to have a man in Baltimore start checking with Warner's parents there in the event some lead as to his whereabouts might turn up there. After that, I drove out to see Dr. Gorey, veterinarian. You know, you have a way of not being very nice on the telephone. What is it now, Mr. Dollar? I just talked to my home office in Hartford, Dr. Gorey. They aren't very happy with the way this case has been going. They're too bad about them in Hartford. How does it affect me? Well, they're just about at the point where they might close it and call me back home. All this fuss and they're going to pay the claim? No, no, not at all. I don't mean they're going to pay at all. What? They can do one of two things. They can appeal to the insurance commission for a judgment. They'd have a point. No reliable or cooperative witnesses saw the accident to the horse or the circumstances of it. What's more, there's no carcass. For all we know, the horse may be down in Mexico. Now, look, or here. they can institute proceedings against Abbott. Charge him with attempt to defraud. That's ridiculous. Why would a man worth almost a million dollars worry about an insurance policy? Well, of course, it's ridiculous to you and me, Doctor. But then legally, it's not ridiculous at all. I can pretty well put some things together. Abbott didn't even want to file a claim for the loss of that horse. As a matter of fact, he fired his office manager, Monroe, for filing the claim. Fired him and paid him a bonus to get out and stay out so Monroe wouldn't have to answer any questions, true? Possibly. Abbott blamed the accident on Thomas Warner and fired him, too. Warner hasn't been seen or heard of since. Now, you said on the phone... I didn't say it, but I'll say it now. Abbott hated Warner because Warner was seeing his daughter. I'll also say Abbott never struck me as a man who could control his hates. Tom Warner's nothing to me. I don't know anything about him. But Ben Abbott is something to you. Now, look, Doctor. I spent some time checking you out because you're one of the parties who can help settle this thing. You've been in practice around here for a good long time. People seem to think a lot of you. I hate to see a nice guy like you get the book. I think I can stop that if you cooperate. Now, look here. Forget I'm an insurance investigator. I'm just a guy giving you some information. 
When I said my company's ready to turn the matter over to the insurance commission or file charges, it means that Abbott will have to sue for settlement. And that's just what we'd want him to do. In court, he'd have to produce Thomas Warner and prove his story of the accident. I don't think he can produce Thomas Warner. With what we have so far, Abbott would lose the suit and the insurance company wouldn't fool around then. There's no outfit tougher than an insurance company when somebody's trying to cheat them, whether it's inadvertent or not. You'd have to be in court too, Doctor. Oh. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Well, how about it? Can you give me the real story now? I've been Ben Abbott's friend for 20 years. And he asked you to lie for him. That's understandable to me. In a court, though, it's perjury. What'll it do to him? That's up to the company. I'll have to hear your part of it first. Duke Red was dead when I got out there that night. Ben had shot him. Duke Red hadn't had any accident. Ben made me promise to tell you that he had. Ben had just shot him. Shot him? But why? Duke Red wasn't the horse Ben counted on or thought he was. He had good confirmation, but he just wouldn't run. Couldn't run, I think. Ben got mad about that and shot him. And Tom Warner saw it happen, is that it? Yeah. Ben told me Warner saw him shoot the horse. He gave Warner some money and told him to go away. Uh, I don't know. Ben's losing his mind, I think. I've heard that about him before. From who? His daughter. Terry. Poor Terry. Yes, she'd have reason to say that. Huh? Now what? I'll have to talk to Abbott. Sure. One thing still worries me. What's that? I went over his bank record. He paid out money to Monroe, but he didn't pay out anything to Thomas Warner. He told me that he did. Okay, then. I'll ask him about that, too. This critically acclaimed season of Johnny Dollar aired weeknights at 8.15. It is considered some of the most entertaining American dramatic radio of its day. For more information, please listen to Breaking Walls, episode 102. Hey! Hey, in there, open up. Open up. Open up, somebody, open up. Welcome to Varial, Mr. Casada. I'm sorry. No. This is ridiculous. I do not have some sort of magic that has led to my success. Yes, you do. And it's waking up. I'm finding this very hard to believe. Uh, Magic here. I can almost reach out and grab it. Wait, you mean that I'm a wizard? You knew! David, you have been here for four sun turns and you have learned much. But it's time to make a decision. I created a magic? No! No, you did not! You're fusing magics! 
I, I can fix this. I, I can... No, I, I, I can't. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I needed it. I'm sorry. This new magic has been outlawed in Athery. Was it worth it, Dewey? Does it work? We'll find out in a moment. Your magic is dangerous. It's unpredictable. And it's changing you. Be careful with it. Be careful with how you use it. Don't become someone else. Visit us at VerialSeries.com So that's how it came back. Thereafter, I was in charge of all of them and laid out some of all the programs, I think. Stan Freeberg and I had been doing work together, and I suggested to him we do a dissertation on satire, which we did. And then we did a Japanese haiku show, and we did Jimmy Blue Eyes, which was an idea of Sam Pierce's. We'd do anything. That was the fun of it. So were you the one then on the CBS Radio Workshop, the one who made the decision of which shows, which scripts would be selected yes. and used? Uh, some of them were done from New York, like alternate weeks. I was in charge of the ones from Hollywood. Howard Barnes and Paul Roberts were in charge of the ones from New York. Ours were the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, let me ask you a question which doesn't have to do with radio, but has a lot to do with you. In the famous novel by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, and specifically in George Orwell's 1984, there is a room called Room 101. In that room is the primordial fear of each human being. What's in your Room 101? I suppose a number of things could be there. I keep remembering uh, Lauren Isley's wonderful article it was in Harper's 20 years or so ago. An explorer of caves, he was somewhere in Arizona, let himself down into a cave and turned on his flashlight and found him surrounded by about a billion spiders. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you get out of there fast or if you just drop dead of a heart attack. I suppose I'd do combinations of both dying and leaving. <laughs> uh, I suppose something like that would be in my room. Is that one of the reasons for writing, to exorcise things like that? Not perhaps spiders, but to learn about yourself and to perhaps, by doing that, communicate and to share with others your feelings and your solutions or... Yeah, most writers start with terrors if they have any sense at all. You, you get to a certain age when you discover the world means you. You really discover for the first time, not only that you're alive, but that you can die. You're suddenly very vulnerable. And I had a huge fear of the dark. So you start with that. And you never leave it. And the reason I'm a good writer, I know now, I look back, I was discussing this earlier tonight. I've stayed in close contact with my sense of smell and touch and color, taste, all these sensations. I'm a very primal writer. And when I go into a library, the first thing I do is open a book and smell it. You don't read it, you smell it, first of all, because books smell great. And they smell differently from every country because the ink is different, the paste is different, the paper is different. And I love old bookstores because of the smell. That's part of being a writer and a reader. <laughs> and any library that doesn't smell like a library is not a library to me. It's something else again, but it's not a library. It's a new machine, but it's not a library. 
I've always stayed very close to my feelings. We live in an age that's afraid of its feelings, and as a result, people have to go out and buy what I already give them. I give it to them practically free. You know, you can get a paperback of one of my books for 75 cents to $1.25, and you got all the stuff in there if you pay attention to it, or you go to one of my lectures free. If you listen to me, I'll tell you to listen to your gut, not your head, because your gut and your head are connected anyway. But if you don't listen to your ganglion, what's at the center, right below the heart here, if you don't listen to your stomach telling you what the world is about, you're going to get sick, because that's what gets sick first. And that's getting messages from your brain, of course. That means you're hanging around with the wrong people, you're doing the wrong things, you're, you're not doing the things you should be doing artistically or any other way. You're in the wrong job, you've got the wrong marriage, you've got the wrong friends. Whatever it is, clean it out. Find out what it is and clean it away. You don't need a psychiatrist for this. You just need to listen to your total body. You don't have to go off to EST. You don't have to go to Scientology. Just stay in constant touch with your body and your mind for a lifetime, starting when you're 10. And that is where I've been lucky because I just regurgitate into my typewriter at breakfast and clean up at noon. That's what writing is. You know? The February 13th issue of Broadcasting Magazine gave the returning CBS Radio Workshop a glowing review, calling out William Frug for his ingenious guided laboratory tour at the beginning of Brave New World. Production was slated to cost roughly $1,700 per episode, or just over $60,000 today. The February 17th episode featured two adaptations from the works of Ray Bradbury. CBS Radio a division of the Columbia Broadcasting System and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, from Hollywood... Season of Disbelief and Hail and Farewell, adapted and directed by Anthony Ellis. Two unusual and provocative character studies by one of America's most original authors, Ray Bradbury. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bradbury. It has always seemed to me that life, to all of us, is an endless coil of rope playing through our hands every moment of every hour of the day. The long line of the rope goes back to the time we were born and extends on out ahead to the time of our death. In between lies the eternal now, the flickering moments when each of us must play the rope as best we can, without burning our fingers, snarling the coils, or breaking the line. This is a study of one woman and her rope. Season of Disbelief Old Mrs. Bentley was a saver. She saved tickets, old theater programs, bits of lace, scarves, railroad transfers and such things. All the tags and tokens of her experience she saved. I have a stack of records. Oh, here's Caruso. It was in 1921 in New York. I was 40. John was still alive. Here's June Moon. 
1929, I think, right after John died. That was the huge regret of her life, in a way. The one thing she had most enjoyed touching and listening to and looking at, she hadn't saved. John was far out in the meadow country, dated and boxed and hidden under grasses. And nothing remained of him but his high silk hat, his cane, and his good suit in the closet. But what she could keep, she had kept. Pink flower dresses crushed among mothballs and vast black trunks, and cut glass dishes from her childhood. Her past lived with her. Then, the thing with the children. It happened in the middle of the summer. Mrs. Bentley, coming out to water the ivy on her front porch, saw the two cool-colored, sprawling girls lying on her green lawn, enjoying the immense prickling of the grass. At the very moment she was smiling down on them with her yellow mask face, around the corner, like an elfin band, came an ice cream wagon. The two girls sat up, turning their heads like sunflowers after the sun. Little girls, would you like some? The wagon stopped. There was an exchange of money for pieces of the original Ice Age. These she gave to the girls who thanked her with snow in their mouths, their eyes darting from her buttoned-up shoes to her white hair. Don't you want to buy? No, no, child. I'm old enough and cold enough. The hottest day won't thaw me. Come up on the porch and sit in the shade. Uh, but mind you, don't drip. I'm Alice. She's Jane. How nice. I'm Mrs. Bentley. They call me Helen. I didn't know old ladies had first names. <laughs> well, you never hear them used. Oh, my dear, when you're as old as I, they won't call you Jane either. Old age is dreadfully formal. How old are you? I remember the dinosaurs. No, but how old? Seventy-five. That's old. I don't feel any different now than when I was your age. Our age? Yes, once I was a pretty little girl, just like you, Jane. What's the matter? Nothing. Oh, you don't have to go so soon, I hope. Well. Is something the matter? What? My mother says it isn't nice to fib. Of course it isn't. And not to listen to fibs. Who was fibbing to you, Alice? You were. About what? About your age. About being a little girl. Well, but I was. Many years ago, a little girl like you. Come on, Jane. But how ridiculous. It's perfectly obvious. Everyone was young once. <laughs> You're joking with us. You weren't really ten ever, were you, Mrs. Bentley? You run on home. Get away from here. I won't have you laughing. And your name's not really Helen. Of course it's Helen. Goodbye. Thanks for the ice cream. Once I played hopscotch. You hear me? I did. The idea. No one ever doubted I was a girl before. What a silly, horrible thing to do. I don't mind being old. Not really. But I do resent having my childhood taken away from me. After supper, she gathered together certain items in a perfumed kerchief. 
Then she went to her front porch and stood there stiffly for half an hour. As suddenly as night birds, the two girls flew by, and Mrs. Bentley's voice brought them to a fluttering rest. Girls! Girls! Yes, Mrs. Bentley? Come up onto the porch. Yes, yes Mrs. Mrs. Bentley? I've got some treasures to show you. Uh, sit down, both of you. <clears throat> now, here. I wore this when I was nine. It's a comb. Let's see. It's pretty. And here's a tiny ring I wore when I was eight. Doesn't fit my finger now. Why, it just fits me. It fits my head. And here, here, a, a picture. Who's this little girl? It's me. Well, it doesn't look like you. Anybody could get a picture like this somewhere. But it's the truth. Any more pictures, Mrs. Bentley? Of you later? You got a picture of you at 15? And one at 20? Oh. One at 40? 50? Oh, oh, nonsense. I, I don't have to show you anything. And we don't have to believe you. But this picture proves I was young. That's some other little girl like us. You borrowed it. I, I was married. Where's Mr. Bentley? He's been gone a long time. If he were here, he'd tell you how young and pretty I was when I was 22. But he's not here, and he can't tell. I have a marriage certificate. You could have borrowed it. And the only way I'll believe you were ever young is if you have someone say they saw you when you were 10. Thousands of people saw me, but they're dead, you little fool. Dead or ill or gone away in other towns. I don't know a soul here. Just moved here a few years ago, so no one saw me young. Well, there you are. Nobody saw her. Listen, you must take these things on faith. Someday you'll be as old as I. People will say the same. Oh, no. They'll say those vultures were never hummingbirds. Those owls were never orioles. Those, those parrots were never bluebirds. One day, you'll be like me. No, I won't. Or me. No, you wait and see. You, child. Uh, your mother. Haven't you noticed over the years the change? No. She's always the same. I guess we'd better go home. Thanks for the comb. It's fine. And thanks for the ring. It just fits. And the picture of the little girl. No, come back. You can't have those. They're mine. No, you stole them. They belong to some little girl. You stole them. No! Come back! Oh, come back! Virginia Gregg played the old lady. 28 years later in 1984, at the age of 68, she spoke with Chuck Shaden about her many radio roles. On most of those shows, I doubled other mm -hmm. parts, too. Maybe if an old charwoman came in or something, I'd do those. Did you often uh, use an alternate voice then on these mm -hmm. shows? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And give us a charwoman's voice? Now? Sure. <laughs> well, you'd have to hand me a script and say, here, do her. Take this bucket. Yeah. And what do you want her in? Japanese, Swedish? Oh, you do the German, dialects, Jewish. Uh, dialects and, uh, and everything. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Those children are right. They stole nothing from you, my dear. These things don't belong to you here, you, now. They belong to her, that other you, so long ago. And then, as though an ancient phonograph record had been set hissing under a steel needle, she remembered a conversation she had once with Mr. Bentley. Mr. Bentley, so prim, a pink carnation in his whisk-broomed lapel. My dear, you never will understand time, will you? 
Don't you see, no matter how hard you try to be what you once were, you can only be what you are here and now. Time plays tricks. When you're nine, you think you've always been nine years old and will always be. When you're 30, it seems you've always been balanced there on that bright rim of middle life. And then, when you become 70, you are always and forever 70. You are in the present. You are trapped in a young now or an old now. But there is no other now to be seen. Ticket stubs are trickery. Saving things is a magic trick with mirrors. You're saving cocoons, corsets in a way you can never fit again. Why save them? You can't really prove you were ever young. Pictures. Pictures, John. No, they lie. You're not the picture. After the No, you're not the dates or the ink or the paper. You're not these trunks of junk and tricks. You're only here now, the present you. Yes, I see. I see. In the morning, in the morning, I'll do something final about this and settle down to being only me and nobody else from any other year. That's what I'll do. morning was bright and green, and there at her door, like moths bumping softly on the screen, were the two girls. Got any more things to give us, Mrs. Bentley? More of the little girls' things? She led them down the hall to the library. Uh, take this. The dress in which she had played the Mandarin's daughter at 15. And this. And this. A kaleidoscope, a magnifying glass. Pick out anything you want. Books, skates, dolls, everything. They're yours. Ours? Only yours. And will you help me with a little work? I'm building a big fire in my backyard. I'm emptying the trunks, throwing out this trash for the trash man. It doesn't belong to me. Nothing ever belongs to anybody. We'll help you, Mrs. Bentley. It'll be fun. And now, on summer afternoons, you can see the two little girls like wrens on a wire on Mrs. Bentley's front porch. They sit in their cool dresses, not stirring, waiting for her. And when the silvery chimes of the ice cream man are heard, the front door opens, Mrs. Bentley floats out with her hand deep in the throat of her silver-mouthed purse, and for half an hour you can see them there on the porch, the two girls and the old lady, putting coldness into warmness, eating chocolate icicles, laughing. At last, they are good friends. How old are you, Mrs. Bentley? Seventy-five. How old were you fifty years ago? Seventy-five. You were never young, were you? And never wore ribbons or dresses like these? No, Jane. Never. Have you got a first name? My name is Mrs. Bentley. And you've always lived in this one house? Always. And never were pretty? Never. Never in a million trillion years? Never in a million trillion years. 
John Daner narrated this Anthony Ellis adaptation. The only background I can give about him is, is what I know about him from my personal experience having met him, but only in Hollywood. I didn't know very much about his background before he arrived here. No, I didn't he know. He was English, that. you know. He's English, yes. And his mother was Effie Kalish, a pianist. As a matter of fact, she taught me piano. She came over here with the English pianist by the name of Solomon and brought her family and her husband, who was also her agent. Tony was very musically inclined, and music played a very important part in his, not only the production, but in the writing, in his mind. He wrote musically in many respects. Tempo meant a great deal. Dynamics meant a, a great deal to Tony. He was a very, very broad, very warm, very kind, lovely, lovely man. And a very sensitive man. Extremely sensitive, yeah. yes, absolutely. Presenting now the second of our duo and Mr. Ray Bradbury. The rope of life hisses through our fingers. We reach, it's gone. The beauty of any particular flower, song, poem, or person lies often in the fact that roses must fade, songs die with the breath, poems burn in the fire, golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. But what if beauty could be made to last? Would it still be beautiful or monstrous? Here's the study of a person who seized the traveling rope of life, a moment of beauty, and felt it freeze in his hands. Hail and farewell. going away. There was nothing else to do. The time was up, the clock had run out, and he was going very far away indeed. His suitcase was packed, shoes shined, hair brushed, it expressly washed behind his ears, and it remained only for him to go down the stairs, out the front door, and up the street to the small town station where the train would make a stop for him alone. Then Fox Hill, Illinois, would be left far off in his past. And he would go on, perhaps to Iowa, perhaps to Kansas, perhaps even to California. Willie? Yes? Almost time. All right. I'll be down. In the mirror on his dresser, he saw a face made of June dandelions and July apples and warm summer morning milk. There, as always, was his look of the angel and the innocent, which might never in the years of his life change picked up his valise, looked once more around his room, and went downstairs. Here I am. You can't really be leaving us, Willie. People are beginning to talk. I've been here three years now, but when people begin to talk, I know it's time to put on my shoes and buy a railroad ticket. It's all so strange. I just don't understand. It's so sudden. We'll miss you, Willie. We'll miss you very much. I'll write you every Christmas. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure and satisfaction. It's a shame it had to stop. Shame that you had to tell us about yourself. An awful shame you can't stay on. You're the nicest folks I ever had. Oh, Willie. Willie. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not easy to go. You get used to things. You want to stay. But it doesn't work. I tried to stay on once after people began to suspect how horrible people said. All these years playing with our innocent children, they said. And us not guessing. Awful. And I finally had to leave town one night. It's not easy. You know darn well how much I love both of you. Thanks for three swell years. Well... Willie, where will you go? I don't know. I just start traveling. When I see a town that looks nice and green, I settle in. Will you ever come back? Oh, in about 20 years, maybe it should begin to show on my face. When it does, I'm going to make a grand tour of all the mothers and fathers I've had. Oh, Willie. We can't complain, Anna. Better to have had a son... 36 months, then none whatever. Well, I guess it's time. Goodbye. Thanks. Willie kissed Anna quickly, touched Steve's hand, seized his luggage, and was gone up the street in the green noon light under the trees, not looking back. A small boy... Twelve years old, with a birth certificate in his valise to show that he had been born 43 years ago. Among those featured in the second adaptation were Dick Beals, Lawrence Dobkin, and Peggy Weber. Well, my story started in Texas as well. I was in San Antonio at WOAI in 1938. I was about 12 years old and uh, did a children's series that I wrote from Louisa May Alcott's Under the Lilacs. And from there, went to KVOA in Tucson, Arizona, had my own show for the uh, light and power company there, and came to uh, Los Angeles in 1942 and auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and went to USC at the same time. And finally, Ted Wick gave me my first break on a program on Mutual Radio, and it was a railroad show. Does anyone remember the name? Yes, Mainline. <laughs> was that it? Any, Mainline. Anyway, I, I played a 12-year-old girl. That was my first part. It was a leading role. And then was cast in Cavalcade of America, opposite Joseph Cotton, and was fired the first day, I, <laughs> and uh, went on to do legitimate stage for the next six months at the Musart Theater downtown Los Angeles, and won the audition for Ilsa in Casablanca on NBC. And that was the beginning of my career, and from then on, Carlton E. Morse, Bill Spear, Jack Webb, Jerry Devine, so many others were very loyal, and that was the beginning of my career. The boys were playing on the Green Park Diamond when he came by. He stood a little while among the oak tree shadows, watching them hurl the white snowy baseball into the warm summer air. The boys' voices yelled, and the ball lit on the path near Willie. Hey, Willie! Where are you going, Willie? Uh, gonna visit a cousin of mine for a few days. Hmm? You guys just 
Throwing the ball around, huh? Yeah. You taking the train alone, Willie? Yeah. Boy, that's neat. Hey, uh, how about a couple of throws? I got a little time. Sure, I guess so. Willie dropped his bag and ran back. The white baseball was already up in the sun and plunging down to him. And away again to their white figures, up in the sun again, rushing, life coming and going in a pattern. He thought of the last three years, now spent to the penny, and the five years before that, and so on, down the line. The baseball flying here, there. Mr. and Mrs. Robert Hendlin, Creek Bend, Wisconsin, 1932, the first couple, the first year. Henry and Alice Boltz, Lineville, Iowa, 1935. The Smiths, the Eatons, Robinsons, 1939, 1945. Husband and wife. Husband and wife. No children. No children. No children. A knock on this door, a knock on that. Pardon me. Uh, my name is William. I wonder if I could... A sandwich? Come in. Come in and sit down. Where are you from, son? The sandwich, tall glass of cold milk, the smiling, the nodding, the comfortable, leisurely talking. Son, you look like you've been traveling. You run off from somewhere. No. Are you an orphan? We always wanted kids. Never worked out. Never knew why, one of those things. Well... Getting late, son. Don't you think you better hit for home? I got no home. A boy like you? Not dry behind the ears? Your mother will get worried. I got no home and no folks anywhere in the world. I wonder... I wonder... Could I sleep here tonight? Well, now... Well, son, I don't just know. We never considered taking oh, in a... We've got chicken for supper tonight. Enough for extras. Enough for company. The voices and the faces and the people and always the same first conversations. The years turning, flying away. The voice of Emily Robinson in her rocking chair in summer night darkness. The last night he stayed with her. The night she discovered his secret. Her voice saying... I look at all the little children's faces going by, and I sometimes think, what a shame. What a shame that all these flowers have to be cut. All these bright fires have to be put out. What a shame all these have to get tall and unsightly and, and wrinkle and turn gray or get bald and finally all bone and wheeze be dead and buried off away. When I hear them laugh, I can't believe they'll ever go the road I'm going. They're so eager for everything. I, I guess that's what I miss most in older folks. The, the eagerness gone, nine times out of ten. The freshness gone. So much of the drive and life down the drain. I like to watch school let out each day. It's... It's like someone threw a bunch of flowers out of the school front doors. How does it feel, Willie? How does it feel to be young forever? Are you happy? Are you as fine as you seem? Oh, I, I worked with what I had. After my folks died, 
After I found I couldn't get man's work anywhere, I, I tried carnivals, but they only laughed. Son, they said, you're not a midget, and even if you are, you look like a boy. We want midgets with midgets' faces. Sorry, son. What was I? A boy? I looked like a boy, sounded like a boy. So I might as well go on being a boy. What could I do? What job was there for me? And then one day I, I saw this man in a restaurant looking at another man's pictures of his kids. Sure wish I had kids, he said. Sure wish I had kids. And that instant, sitting there, I, I knew what my job would be for all the rest of my life. There was work for me, making lonely people happy, keeping myself busy, playing forever. I knew I had to play forever, deliver a few papers, run a few errands, mow a few lawns. All I had to do was to be a, a mother's son and a father's pride. But, Willie, didn't you ever get lonely? Didn't you want things that grown-ups wanted? I fought that out alone. I'm a boy, I told myself. I'll have to live in a boy's world, read boys' books, play boys' games, cut myself off from everything else. And I played it that way. Oh, it wasn't easy. There were times. But it's nice being a child for over 40 years. It's a living, as they say. And when you make other people happy, then you're almost happy, too. And anyway, in a few years now, I'll be in my second childhood. All the fevers will be out of me and all the unfulfilled things. And most of the dreams. Then I can relax. He threw the baseball one last time and broke the reverie. And he was picking up his suitcase. The two boys stood beside him. They were embarrassed at his shaking hands with him. Oh, Willie. Means if you're going to China or something. Oh, that's right. It isn't. So long, Willie. See you next week. Yeah. So long, Sam. So long, Jamie. And he was walking off with his suitcase again, looking at the trees, going away from the boys and the street where he had lived. And as he turned the corner, a train whistle screamed, and he began to run. In the early morning, with the iron smell of the train around him and a full night of traveling shaking his bones and his body, he awoke and looked out on a small town just arising from sleep. A porter moved by a shadow in the shadows. Sir, what town's this? Uh, Valleyville. How many people? Ten thousand. Why, this just up? He looks green. He looks nice and quiet. Uh, son, you know where you're going? Here. I hope you know what you're doing, boy. Yes, sir. I know what I'm doing. Down the dark aisle, luggage lifted after him by the porter, and out into this smoking, steaming, cold, beginning to lighten morning. He stood looking at the porter in the black metal train against the few remaining stars. What? Wish me luck! What? Wish me luck! Oh, best of luck, son. Best of luck to you, boy. Thanks! 
watched the black train. He didn't move all the time it was going. He stood quietly, a small boy, 12 years old again, on the worn wooden platform, and only after three entire minutes until the train was completely gone away and out of sight did he turn at last to face the empty streets below. Then as the sun was rising, he began to walk very fast so as to keep warm down into the new town. It was fitting to cast Dick Beals, Due to a glandular disorder, he never went through puberty. In 1956, he was 29 years old, but stood just 4 foot 7 and weighed 70 pounds. Tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop has presented two studies by Ray Bradbury, adapted and directed by Anthony Ellis. The first, Season of Disbelief, with Virginia Gregg and John Daner, Dawn Bender, Marion Richmond, and Herb Butterfield. The second, Hail and Farewell, with Richard Beals, Stacey Harris, Vivi Janis, Lawrence Dopkin, Paula Winslow, Roy Glenn, Billy Chapin, and Peggy Weber. We wish to thank Mr. Bradbury for being our special guest. Original music for tonight's program was composed and conducted by Jerry Goldsmith. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced by William Frug. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when we present the eminent Shakespearean teacher, Dr. Frank C. Baxter professor of English at the University of Southern California, and Mr. William Shakespeare, noted author, who will be our special guests, presented on the CBS Radio Workshop. On Sunday, over most of these same stations, the New York Philharmonic Symphony will be heard in another exciting concert conducted by Dmitry Metropolis. This weekend, the noted Polish pianist Witold Malkoczynski will be heard as soloist. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these stations by The Jack Carson Show. America listens most to the CBS radio network. Well, people are always saying, yeah, Ray, you're not doing enough. And I keep complaining I'm doing plenty. <laughs> I would like to come back 10 times or 12 times because there are a lot of careers. Uh, my son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws, is a young architect studying at UCLA. And I've loved architecture. I'd like to come back as an architect. I'd like to come back as a priest or a rabbi or a minister because I care about those problems. I care about the universe and the mystery of us in it, which is inexplicable and beautiful and terrifying. And I'd like to come back as a painter, a full-time actor, full-time poet. There's more than enough to be done. And I don't understand people who haven't found careers for themselves <laughs> because I'm going wild wanting to be all these things and not having enough lifetime to do it in. You made a comment before we started chatting here for our tape recorder about the demise of radio, the short life of it. Well, it was a wonderful and exciting life. When I went to Chicago, I believe there was something like 41 dramatic radio shows coming out of Chicago, 41 mm. a week, mm. separate shows. And I think when we left there in, in 1942 to come out here, there were about five or six left. It just the bottom simply fell out of it. And I missed it very much. I enjoyed radio very much. But of course it was mostly television after the war that oh, yes. uh, really 
shut the lid on the It completely on the shut radio. the lid on it. But you were very much involved with radio right up to the very end. Right uh, up to the end, yeah. I guess CBS was the last of the... Yes, I think I, I think I did the last radio show, network radio show, that was done here, dramatic show, called Johnny Dollar. Bob Bailey, an ex-Chicagoan, was playing Johnny Dollar on it. Star, wavy lines, square... Seven, seven, three. CBS Radio and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, report on ESP, a study of clairvoyance, telepathy, and extrasensory perception. Taken from actual case records. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John McIntyre. Extrasensory perception, clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition. These are the laboratory words. But in everyday life, you and I are faced with a multitude of strange occurrences. Item. A man is about to board a certain airliner. Suddenly, on a hunch, he turns back to the ticket window and changes to another flight. An hour later, the plane he would have been on crashes into a mountainside. Item. A mother suddenly and unaccountably breaks into tears at the moment her son is killed a thousand miles away. Reason? Unknown. Unexplained. Cross. Square. Today, modern scientists are delving deeper and deeper into these mysteries. Star. In the science laboratory of a great Circle. university, a girl sits at a table Cross. and draws cards from an automatic shuffling Cross. machine. On the, the face design. of each card is one of five star. possible designs. Cross. A star, a circle, a cross, square. a square, three Wait wavy lines. Without star. looking at the cards, the girl tries to identify star. the designs by mental impressions, Circle. by clairvoyance. At another table, a man watches dice tumble about in a revolving cage. The man calls out a number. Six. The dice are cast. The number is six. At still another table, an experimenter stares at a photograph of a tree and tries to project the mental image of this tree to an artist at a drawing board in the next room. These are only a few of the experiments by which modern science hopes to probe into these unexplained phenomena to solve one of life's greatest riddles. Uh, Mr. McIntyre, uh, may I interrupt for just a moment? Certainly. Uh, my name is Lawrence Dobkin. Mr. Dobkin? Now, it's my contention most of these things can be explained. Properly investigated with adequate controls, science can show a perfectly normal logical explanation for almost any of these uh, so-called psychic phenomena. I see. Excuse me, Mr. McIntyre. I'm Russell Thorson, and I'd like to ask Mr. Dobkin a question. Well, go right ahead, Mr. Thorson. Mr. Dobkin, mm -hmm. do you feel that science has been able to determine by what mean certain men and women are are able to consult a forked stick and discover water far underground? You mean a water dowser? Yes. Oh, well, that's a superstition that goes back to the Middle Ages. I believe it's more than a superstition. I believe it's extrasensory perception. Oh. Uh, gentlemen, may I make a suggestion? Certainly, Mr. McIntyre. The workshop has included the case of a water dowser in tonight's report. For case number one, we have invited a gentleman who can give us an eyewitness account of how a water dowser works. 
Mr. Robert Ballin. To begin with, let me say that my experience is limited to the method used by one particular dowser, Mr. Henry Gross, game warden of Biddeford, Maine, probably the country's best-known dowser. Two books have been written about him by Kenneth Roberts, author of such bestsellers as Northwest Passage and Oliver Wiswell. As a result of reading of Mr. Roberts' books on Henry Gross, I decided to employ him to find water on my farm, which is just outside Manchester, Vermont. Shortly after I bought the farm, in the fall of 1954, the spring that supplied all my water suddenly went dry. Some of my neighbors said nothing could be done about it. Some said I should call in a geologist and try to drill a well. Instead, I got in touch with Kenneth Roberts and Mr. Henry Gross. I asked if Mr. Gross would be willing to come over from Maine and douse my farm. He said he would for a fee of $500 in expenses, and a day or so later he drove up to my front door. He was a man of about 60, a little less than medium height, quiet, soft-spoken country gentleman. I invited him into the house for a cup of coffee, and Mr. Gross explained the conditions that I must agree to. Now, Mr. Ballin, if I tell you where to dig your well, you must dig right there at that spot, and not maybe off a few feet north or south. Yes, I I understand that, Mr. Gross. And uh, don't bring in one of those big bulldozers for the digging. Oh? Oh, machine's too heavy. But nice the earth down so tight, it'd crush the veins and the water off in a new direction. Yes, I, I could see that it might. All right, we can get started. Most of my farm is on a hillside with a good deal of natural growth. As we walked along, Mr. Gross pulled up a goldenrod plant and bent it into the shape of the letter V. He took one fork of the branch in each hand and held the point directly in front of him in a horizontal position. He aimed slowly to the right, then to the left. Suddenly, the branch dipped downward. Uh-huh. Yes, looks like your old spring, the one that dried out, is straight up the hill. I didn't tell you where it was, did I? Oh, didn't need to. That's where my rod says it is. That's why it dipped. In other words, if the rod points down, that indicates water? Mm-hmm. Or if I'm asking the rod a question, a dip means yes. If it doesn't dip, that's no. Can the rod tell how near we are to the spring? I'll, uh, I'll ask it. <clears throat> how far away is the old spring? More than a hundred yards? We waited a moment, and then the rod dipped again. More than uh, 200 yards. Another pause. Then another dip. More than 500 yards. This time it was motionless. Seems to be less than 500. Is it uh, 450 yards? Is it 460 yards? The questions continued until the rod indicated the old spring was 458 yards up the hill. We then paced off the distance and found it to be 457 yards. Now, considering that a man's stride cannot be exact, the rod's accuracy was phenomenal. You know why this uh, spring went dry? It was off on a tributary, and this long drought parched it out. You you think the main vein is still flowing? Mm-hmm. Just a question of finding it. We worked our way down the slope until the divining rod dipped again. Then Mr. Gross began walking back and forth and asking the rod questions. Finally, we had worked ourselves almost up to my back door. And then Mr. Gross laid the rod aside. Mr. Ballin, you've got a good vein. Comes down from the top of that hill. It's about 20 feet wide. The deepest part is 7 feet. 
and behind your house it rises to within four feet of the surface. Oh. Now this is the place to dig. You'll find it's excellent drinking water. Fine. It's only four feet. I can dig it myself. Sure. Be good exercise. Uh, Mr. Gross, two or three times while you were working, you you seemed to break into perspiration and tremble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens now and then. Takes a little out of you when you feel the water. You say feel? Well, that's the only way I can describe it. Well, then you must be able to find the water without using a divining rod. I do sometimes, but the rod is a help. Well, tell me, do you think other dowsers feel water the same way you do? I can't say, but I do know that most of us are outdoor folks. We're at home in the woods and fields. I think that's important, very important. I followed Mr. Gross's instructions and started digging in the spot that he had indicated. The top earth was dry and caked. But at about 18 inches, the soil was damp. At two feet, it was moist. At three feet, water seeped into the hole. As far as we could tell, the water vein was exactly at the depth that Mr. Gross had predicted. And now, I'd like to present in person the gentleman who participated in this remarkable phenomenon. Mr. Robert W. Ballin, a vice president of the world's largest advertising agency, the J. Walter Thompson Company. Mr. Ballin. Thank you, Mr. McIntyre. Uh, would you care to make any comments on this case? No, I don't think so, except to say I realize that my experience with Mr. Henry Gross was quite impossible, except for one thing. It actually happened through no other device than one man's unusual powers. Thank you, Mr. Ballin. And uh, you might be interested to know that in preparing this program, the workshop has inquired as to Mr. Henry Gross's recent activities as a water dowser. He has been employed by the city of Fredericksburg, Texas, by landowners on the island of St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, by such firms as Bristol Myers Chemical Laboratories, the A.C. Lawrence Leather Company, a subsidiary of Swifton Company, by two large electronic factories in New Jersey, and by Canada's largest munitions plant. Report on ESP, broadcast on March 9, 1956, was directed by Jack Johnstone. I directed in the studio, wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up, or maybe all of them, then they all sped up, and then the next signal was, <laughs> you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit, and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. Sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS over the other networks, simply because of the personnel involved. They were far more interested in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. John McIntyre narrated, Russell Thorson was the protagonist, and Lawrence Dobkin the antagonist. I was uh, either approaching my teens or just into my teens. Somebody schlepped me to WOR in New York where a young man named Ted Cott, C-O-T-T, -T, 
who has stayed in radio all these years. Ted Cott was directing a half-hour kind of adventure number that was called The Ebony Elephant. Apparently the secret was hidden in the belly of the ebony elephant, which was meant to be a, you know, like the Maltese falcon. You could carry it around and hide it. And I was to play an evil little boy, which was no particular challenge. <laughs> and I got $5 for all the rehearsals and the broadcast and became an AFRA member the following year, went out on strike to do better than $5. Excuse me, Mr. McIntyre, may I just make a comment? Certainly, Mr. Dobkin. Thank you. Now, science has investigated water dowsing. It appears that when that rod twists and uh, dips in the dowser's hands, well, that's actually caused by an unconscious muscular action. Hmm? Now, if that's correct, there's no mystery about it. But there is. There most certainly is. In what way, Mr. Thorson? Well, even if the dowser should control the rod by this, uh, this unconscious muscular action, what is it that affects his muscles? If the dowser has some strange affinity for water, how does he feel it? Well, no, these and, are and, several... and how is it that Mr. Gross, over a flowing vein of water, can hold two dowsing rods, each slightly off-center, and have one rod work frontward and the other backward? Muscles can't do that. Well, but now you're getting off into the supernatural. The supernatural, or the natural, in a way not yet understood by science. In every era since the age of ice and of the mastodon, man has believed in the miraculous. He turned to the witch doctors, the soothsayers, to the astrologers, the magicians, to the frauds and the cunning cheats. Again and again his faith was betrayed, and yet he believed. He believed because there was something, something that was beyond his knowledge. In the Bible there are miracles. Belshazzar feasted with a thousand nobles, and a hand appeared and wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphosin. And in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Pharaoh dreamed a dream of seven fat years and seven lean years. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, slept and saw a vision of himself humbled as unto the beasts of the field. What are these dreams, these visions? To be exact, sir, they're phenomena that come under the heading of precognition. That is to say, the knowing of an event before it actually well, happens. Well, now, now, just a minute. Yes, Mr. Dunn. At times, you know, science finds it difficult to accept biblical stories as literal fact. They are very effective, yes, as literature. But we can't possibly prove that these things actually did occur. Nor can we prove that they did not, sir. Yes, well, all right. Now we're quibbling. How about some modern examples? Would you accept them? That depends on the quality of the evidence. We all know that certain people are given to telling some very remarkable things, which are either pure imagination or events that have been poorly observed and wrongly interpreted. Mr. Dobkin, I doubt if you would charge fraud or mistake in the two cases I'm proposing. They're both a matter of public record. Uh, Mr. McIntyre, would you please... With pleasure. Case number two, which might be called precognition. The year was 1858. The Mississippi River boat, Pennsylvania, was laying over at St. Louis. Among the crew were Henry Clemens and his older brother Sam. Samuel Clemens, who would one day write his way to fame under the pen name of Mark Twain. 
While the steamboat loaded cargo, Sam went ashore to stay overnight at the home of his sister, Pamela. Early the following morning, Pamela was awakened by a noise downstairs and a voice. Henry! Henry! Pamela reached for her robe and hurried downstairs. She entered the sitting room to find her brother Samuel staring wildly about. Sam, what are you doing up at this hour? It seems so, so real. What? I was so sure that I jumped out of bed and came down to look at him. Sam. When he wasn't here, I thought they'd moved him. Who, Sam? Moved who? Henry. He was dead. Oh, Sam, you were just having another one of your nightmares. It was as real as you are, Pamela. I saw Henry stretched out here in this sitting room. He was in a metal coffin. There was a bouquet on his chest. White flowers. All white. Except for one red rose in the center. It was so vivid. Sam, it was just a dream. Yes. A few weeks later, on June 13th, 60 miles below Memphis, the boilers of the steamboat Pennsylvania exploded. Among the 160 dead was Henry Clemens. In a Memphis warehouse, the victims were laid out in a long line of wooden coffins. There was but one metal coffin. Samuel Clemens stood beside it and gazed down at his brother's body. On the chest was a bouquet of white flowers, all white, except for one red rose in the center. Case number three. Seven years later, in the second week of April, 1865, another man dreamed a dream. Afterward, he told it to his wife and to his best friend. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. I went from room to room. No living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. I was both puzzled and alarmed. I kept on until I arrived at the East Room. There before me was a cattle falc on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse, others weeping pitifully. I asked one of the soldiers there, Who is dead in the White House? The president, he said, he was killed by an assassin. That same week, in April, the man who dreamed that dream, Abraham Lincoln, attended a play at Ford's Theater. Later, his body lay in state in the East Room. <clears throat> yes. Well, gentlemen? Well, first I'd like to ask Mr. Dobkin if he questions the validity of those two dreams. No, 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 Mr. Thorson. I accept them as correct statements of actual events. Thank you. But now, tell me, have you never had a dream of dying or... Falling downstairs or being in an auto accident? Oh, I imagine I have. Oh, yes. I know I have. Well, let's suppose that everybody in the United States has had at least one dream of accident or of disaster. 
That's 165 million dreams. Now, the simple law of averages guarantees that some of those dreams will come true. I, I think this is a good time to quote Dr. Sigmund Freud. He said, if one regards oneself as a skeptic, it is well from time to time to be skeptical about one's skepticism. <laughs> and, yeah. and on clairvoyant dreams, he said, uh, just a minute, Mr. McIntyre, would you oblige me again? Certainly. In Vienna in 1925, Dr. Sigmund Freud, the great pioneer in the science of psychoanalysis, had this to say. If there are such things as telepathic messages, the possibility cannot be dismissed of their reaching someone during sleep. The further possibility arises that telepathic messages received in the course of a day may only be dealt with during a dream of the following night. I hope you paid particular attention to that last part, Mr. Dobkin. There is a possibility that telepathic messages might come to a person only in a dream. Yes, yes, I got that point. All right. Doesn't that suggest something to you? At the very time of President Lincoln's dream, John Wilkes Booth was planning his assassination. Using Freud's theory, Lincoln might have picked up Booth's murderous thoughts by telepathy. Therefore, the dream. Well, it's a startling idea, certainly, but again, th there's no possible proof. The world is filled with things difficult to prove. Their mere existence is our proof. Well... We yeah. scientists have spent centuries studying the animal world. And what do we come up with? Mystery. Item. The homing pigeon. The homing pigeon can find its way back to its home loft over distances up to 100 miles. In some cases, the distance has approached 1,000 miles. Means by which the bird determines latitude, longitude, curvature of the earth? Unknown. Item, household pets. Dogs and cats have been separated from their owner and have returned on foot over distances of many hundreds of miles. Bobby, a collie, traveled almost 2,000 miles between the states of Indiana and Oregon. Means of determining direction... Unknown. Item, the European eel. The European eel swims from inland rivers into the Atlantic, makes its way 2,000 miles to a deep off the West Indies. There it spawns and dies. The baby eels born off the West Indies return across the Atlantic and ascend the same rivers from which their parents had come years before. Method of finding their way? Unknown. Well, this is all very interesting, Mr. Thorson, but these are things that we call instinct. Yes, and what is instinct? Can science explain it? Well, we're investigating it. And, and we... we still don't know. I say that instinct includes clairvoyance and telepathy at work at an animal level. Yes, but that is simply argument. <sighs> Sam Edwards was Mark Twain. Raymond Burr played Abraham Lincoln. Lillian Bayef was Pamela Clemens. And Don Diamond was Sigmund Freud. On August 9, 1986... Dobkin, Bayef, and Diamond spoke at a Spurvac meeting. You know why I like radio? The words uh, made your imagination work, and you built a million-dollar set just like that in your mind. And then I like the people in radio, generally speaking, mm -hmm. except George Peroni. <laughs> uh, I like George Peroni, I mean, too. Listen, you had to be able to read. You had to be a, a literate person to work in radio. Some very nice people there. And then I liked, because later on I did a lot of film work and I had to do fights. I loved the idea of going into a radio show Let and the just, the, here's the big fight scene. Let the sound <laughs> <man> do it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Weren't you the one, Don, that we always hesitated to have you in a dying scene because it would always take five minutes? Hmm? 
Mr. McIntyre, may we have the case of Lady the Wonder Horse? Certainly. Case number four. An example of clairvoyance, as told by Mr. Stuart Wyatt. Well, it was back in the fall of 1950, late October. My wife Nancy and our 12-year-old boy Billy and I went up to spend a weekend at our mountain cabin. This was back in eastern Tennessee on the shore of a small lake. Late Saturday afternoon, Billy went out in a sailboat. I told him not to because it looked like there was a storm blowing up, but, well, you know how kids are. But, well, anyway, the wind kept getting stronger and stronger, and Nancy and I got worried. We saw Billy trying to take in sail, but he couldn't do it fast enough. Then the mast broke and the boat capsized. I swam out to the wreckage, but there was no sign of Billy. So we telephoned the nearest forest ranger station, and they sent over a couple of men with a search boat. They couldn't find anything either. That night, in the pouring rain, we had over 200 volunteers combing the woods and the shore. They even brought in bloodhounds. But after two days of this, the chief ranger, Anderson, was pretty discouraged. Well, we've dragged the lake three times, Mr. Wyatt, and still nothing. I'm afraid the body must be caught under the ledge or something where our equipment can't reach it. Looks like there's nothing more we can do. When I told that to my wife, it, it's a funny thing, Mr. McIntyre. She, she just suddenly stopped crying. She said, all right. Now it's time to try that horse she'd read about. It was supposed to be able to find missing children, and its name was Lady. I told her it was ridiculous, but, well, we'd tried everything else. The horse which Mrs. Wyatt had read about is Lady, owned by Mrs. C.D. Fonda of Richmond, Virginia. Mr. and Mrs. Wyatt found the 25-year-old mare waiting for them in her barn. In front of her was a strange contrivance of levers and wooden blocks with letters of the alphabet and numbers running from one to ten. Following instructions, the Wyatts asked Lady a test question. Lady, tell me, what was my maiden name? The horse moved toward one of the levers. She pressed her nose against the lever, and a block with a letter L came into view. L. L. Lee, that's right, Lee, Nancy Lee. Oh, this is impossible. Nobody around here knows your maiden name. Lady does. Well... Lady, is my son Billy alive? L Lady? A. A. L. L. I. Alive. God, oh, Lady, Lady, where is Billy? Lady, where is Billy? He's in a cave. Mr. and Mrs. Wyatt telephoned from Richmond to Chief Ranger Anderson back in Tennessee. They told him to search for a cave. The following is from the official report of Ranger Anderson. The white boar was found in a small cave approximately one and one-quarter miles northeast of the lake. He was unconscious. Dr. Warner gave him a blood transfusion, and he was removed to the hospital. When I was able to question him, the white boy stated these circumstances. After the sailboat capsized and sank, he swam to the nearest shore. While attempting to return home through the woods, he stumbled into an animal trap. The trap broke his left leg, and he began to lose blood. In a state of fright and confusion, he then began to crawl in a direction away from the lake. 
He discovered the cave and decided to stay there until the rainstorm was over. Sometime during the night, he lost consciousness. He remembered nothing more until reviving in the hospital. He was discharged therefrom on October 28th, fully recovered. Cases similar to that of the Wyatt boy in which the horse lady has guided searchers to the recovery of the bodies of missing children may be read in Newsweek magazine, the issues of October 25th, 1948, December 22nd, 1952, and February 16th, 1953. In Time magazine, issue of December 15th, 1952, in Life magazine, issue of December 22nd, 1952, and in Popular Mechanics magazine, issue of March, 1952. Mr. Frug, one of the most, to me at least, prolific writers on CBS Radio Workshop and indeed perhaps radio in general was Anthony Ellis. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about him. Oh, yeah. See, I'm glad you brought up Tony Ellis. I'm glad Tony's not forgotten. He was a very nice gentleman with quite a heavy English accent who married my secretary, incidentally. Very, very nice guy. I liked working with him a lot. I thought he did superb work. And he kept on until there wasn't any more radio. I think he did a few television pieces, I'm not sure. He and Jan moved up to Arrowhead, I believe, and I think he died of cancer. For more information on Antony Ellis, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 101. Amerigo Marino was the episode's musical director. I don't know where Ricky is. Uh, I lost touch with him entirely. He selected music. Jerry Goldsmith did in the very beginning. Uh And then Ricky Marino came along, picked the music from the record files later. Incidentally, Ricky then later became music director for the Glendale Symphony, which is a pretty good band. I narrated, what, Peter and the Wolf and... uh, Young People's Guide to the Orchestra by Dachnani for him over at Glendale one time. <laughs> Item, Emanuel Swedenborg. Emanuel Swedenborg, scientist and philosopher in September 1759, saw in a waking dream a disastrous fire which was burning at that very moment in the city of Stockholm, 50 miles away. He specified the houses which were then in flames and gave the correct hour at which the fire was extinguished. Item, Leo Tolstoy. In 1910, Count Leo Tolstoy, famous author, sent a message to the Tsar of Russia, the German Kaiser, and the King of England, in which he described his dream of World War I, four years before it occurred. He stated when the war would begin, where it would be, outlined its horrors, foresaw the League of Nations. Now, gentlemen, any questions? You, Mr. Thorson? I rest my case. You, Mr. Dobkin? <laughs> I, uh, I rest my case. Weighty lines, star, circle. A girl sits at a table and draws circle. cards from an automatic shuffling machine. Circle. By the mathematical laws Square. of chance, she should correctly identify Weighty without lines. looking at the cards. Five out of every 25 drawn. Cross. This girl has Square. scored as high as nine and fifteen Star. cards consecutively correct. 
Star. In one such experiment, the score Cross. has exceeded the laws of chance by Square. odds of 400,000 to 1. Star. In still other cases, Star. the odds have risen to the astronomical Star. ratio of 1 trillion and 1 Seven. quadrillion to 1. Six. In laboratories and universities Six. throughout the United States and Europe and Seven. South Africa, the research goes on. Twelve. New light is being shed Seven. on the phenomena of telepathy and clairvoyance. The day Five. may be not far distant... When science will establish the principles Eleven. of extrasensory perception and its Nine. operation as firmly Nine. as the laws which govern nuclear fission. Star. The ideas advanced by Professor Sigmund Freud and by other Clear. investigators may yet Circle. be proven fact. Circle. That long before man's first crude Eighty-nine. stammerings, long Star. before he first chiseled his ideographs Star. into stone, Star. man communicated to fellow man Star. through thought. Star. Tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop has presented Report on ESP, directed by Jack Johnstone. Research and script by Leonard St. Clair. John McIntyre was the narrator. The cast included Lucille Meredith, Lillian Bayef, Don Diamond, Lawrence Dobkin, Russell Thorson, Stacey Harris, Robert Ballin, Forrest Lewis, Sam Edwards, Raymond Burr, and Bert Holland. Original music for tonight's program was composed and conducted by Amerigo Marino with vocal by Norma Zimmer. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in Hollywood by William Frug. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when we present Cops and Robbers, a unique experiment in which real-life detectives use actual police methods to solve a fictional crime. Presented on the CBS Radio Workshop. On the New York Philharmonic Symphony broadcast, presented by most of these same stations this Sunday, you'll hear the second of two all-Mozart programs. Bruno Walter will conduct the Mozart Symphony No. 25 in G major, and then will present the rarely performed Mozart Requiem. That's this Sunday on CBS Radio. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed on most of these stations by The Jack Parson Show. Five, eleven. America listens most to nine, the CBS Radio Network. Nine, nine. Radio is such a clean business compared to the rest of show business. There were talented people in radio who got along on their talent, not because they were related to somebody not because they had something on somebody, not because they could knife somebody in the back. It was the clean end of show business. Elia Kazan, I used to have him on Crime Doctor, I guess it was, quite frequently, and we'd walk from CBS to Grand Central Station after the show, after the broadcast, and Gadget said more than once that to him, good radio was far more difficult than any of the other media. He'd been born and brought up in a, behind the scenes in the theater. Was not only an accomplished actor, but a good director, too. But he felt that, partly because of the limitations of rehearsal, it took more talent to do radio well than any of the other media.
Mary, no! God, let go! Like, I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Did you stay with the show till the end? I stayed with the show until they blackmailed me. Howard called me from New York and said, you got a choice. A guy Della Chapa is going to CBS television. It means his job is open as vice president of programs, which I did not want. He said, we have decided no executive can collect the salary as an executive and also pick up a talent fee, which I was doing, $150 a show to produce and direct the Columbia workshop. He said, the management's decided you can't be both an executive and talent. So either you take Della Chapa's job or you lose the Columbia workshop. However, if you'll take the vice president's job, we'll pay the same money you're making. You won't lose any money. I flew back to New York and said, Howard, I don't want the job. I don't want to wear a suit and tie. I love writing and producing. He said, I know, but we have to have somebody fill this job. I said, we're all slowly vanishing, and you and I know that. I took the job, and I think it was like three or $400 a week. I'm very grateful for the money, but I had to give up all producing and directing. I did it for one year and begged out. In truth, the demands, having written about a hundred of those television episodes, I think the demands are so different and they are so rigid in television. The formula is so rigid that you must try to recognize that most of the creative people working within television are really in a uh, chokehold put on by the network, who tells them exactly where they want the chase to come, exactly at what point the protagonist is in jeopardy, who's going to play what, and there is just simply no creative freedom in television at all of any kind. This is Paris. The great bells of Notre Dame Cathedral. Over the next few months, the workshop broadcast The Legend of Jimmy Blue Eyes with William Conrad. They poked fun at urbanites who moved west in a piece narrated by Eric Severide. They adapted The Little Prince and David Shornburn hosted a portrait of Paris. A boy and a girl in love in a handsome cab, flip-flopping through the part of Bologna in the pink dawn. On August 3rd, they broadcast subways are for sleeping. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop.
Desk clerk. Journal American 411? Right away. Good afternoon, Arthur. Oh, hello, Mr. Shelby. Any messages for me? Well, not since I came on, sir. May I have my key, please? I'm sorry, Mr. Shelby, but the manager says not to give you your key until your bill's paid. Oh? It's 113 bucks and some odd cents. I know. You want I should call him so you can talk to him about it? No, never mind. Sorry, Mr. Shelby. It's not your fault, Arthur. I'll stop back in a couple of days to see if there's any mail. Yes, sir. Yes, Clark. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Martin. $14.60, 65, 66 cents. Well, I can eat for a week or so. And plenty of people sleep in the subway. CBS Radio presents the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, subways are for sleeping, based upon the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love, a true story of one man's strange adjustment to mid-century materialism in the largest city in the world. Have you ever gotten fed up with rent, taxes, and bills, and the clatter of telephones? With all the demands, large and small, that our complicated civilization makes upon us. Henry Shelby finally did. When they locked him out of his hotel room, he stayed out. For the past three years, he has, by choice, been homeless and without a steady job. Yet, Henry Shelby is no bum. He is as well-dressed and as smoothly shaven as the next man you'll meet. He's not stupid. He holds a master's degree in economics and is a former school teacher. He has never visited a soup kitchen or stood in a bread line or asked for a night's lodging at a Bowery mission. Still, he has learned for himself how to maintain his sanity and peace of mind in a confused and confusing society which takes from a man more than it gives. Henry Shelby has reversed the process. And this is how he does it. I'm getting along all right. I'm perfectly happy. I'm just waiting to see how things come out. In the meantime, I see to it that I always have at least 15 cents, so I'm sure of a place to sleep. And the truest statement I ever heard is that no one will ever starve to death in the United States. Eighty-six in the bean soup... All out of Yankee bean, Mac. Cream of tomatoes, okay. Tomato or both? Well, as I live and hope to, Shelby. Hello, Ernie. So you've got the counterman wanted sign on the window. Yeah. Guy was here two weeks. Today never shows. Want to go to work right now? Sure. Well, go on back and grab a hat and jacket. I ain't even checked cash from breakfast yet. Okay, fine. Want a cup of coffee or something first? Go right ahead. No, I'm fine. Here's your soup, Mac. Crackers or bread? Crackers. Hey, ain't you the regular counterman? Me? I'm supposed to manage a joint. You give any bum comes along a job? Shelby ain't no bum, Mac. He's a college graduate. Oh. Michigan or someplace like that. Used to be a school teacher, too. So? Well, he shows up every three, four months, works a couple of days for five bucks a day in his meals, and then he's gone. When he tells me he ain't coming back. So that makes him he ain't a bum. It does in my book. He can do anything around the joint. Do it plenty good, too. How's the soup? All right. Anything else? Uh, I don't know yet. 
This jacket isn't exactly the best fit in the world. <laughs> you look great, Shelby. I'll bet. Now, uh, here's your checks and a punch. Everything's the same as last time he was here. Uh, not quite. Corned beef and beans are up a nickel. <laughs> hey, they are at that. I forgot. Well, she's all yours. I'll uh, check the register. Anything else for you, sir? Pie? Coffee? Well, I might have some pie at that. Um, apple. Right. Uh, with cheese, I guess. Right. Empty the mousetrap on this pie. Hey, uh, look, Shelby, I was thinking I, uh, I got no night chef for the moment either. Why don't you stick around for a couple of weeks and help me out? Well... Eight-hour shift, five days, 55 bucks, and all the food you can steal. Here you are, sir. Well, I'll think about it, Ernie. I actually didn't have to think about it. When I went in, I knew I'd only stay for a few days. I have five or six places like that. They're my social security. I use them when my cash is way down and my suit needs dry cleaning. And when I'm ready for a good, long sleep, lying down. So, Henry Shelby works just long enough to get a little money ahead. Then he picks up his clean laundry and checks in at a respectable but inexpensive hotel. Here's the 450 in advance. I'm afraid I don't have any luggage. And will you send the valet up to my room in a few minutes, please? Once his suit is on its way to the cleaners, Shelby spends the next 24 hours in bed or under the shower. He has taken as many as 15 showers on one of these occasions and slept for as long as 22 hours. It's an extravagance, of course. It costs me seven or eight dollars, and that's as much as I usually spend in a whole week. But I certainly do feel fine when I check out. And thus refreshed, Henry Shelby sets out again to roam the streets of New York. First stop, to leave his laundry somewhere in the Grand Central area. He owns two of everything except for his one suit, and he'll pick up this bundle in a few days. Bathe and change in a booth at Grand Central Terminal, and drop the soiled clothing off at another laundry in the vicinity. I carry a safety razor in my pocket, and I shave at least every 36 hours. It costs 25 cents for a booth, but I can freshen up generally at the same time. The bums who look like bums are mainly the ones the cops bother. Naturally, I don't consider myself a bum, so I make it a point not to look or feel like one. Twenty-four hours can be a long time, particularly when all you have to look forward to is 24 more of the same. But Henry Shelby fills them with endless variations of the same pattern. And he walks between whatever geographical points are involved. Breakfast time may find him at a juice bar on 3rd Avenue. Large tomato juice, please. Come on there, friend. Fill it up. Your sign says 12 full ounces for a dime. coffee at the automat on 6th, another cup later in the gloomy fluorescent glare of a cafeteria in the garment district. I load in all the cream and sugar the mug will hold. They're calories, free calories. 
Lunch in the Gramercy Park neighborhood today. Yesterday, it may have been at Broadway and 116th, but at the same kind of a white tile stand and very likely the same lunch. A frankfurter, I guess, and a large glass of milk. Two or three more cups of calories during the afternoon, and finally, the one substantial meal of the day. The Vienna loaf dinner looks all right. Vienna loaf coming up. Uh, not that slice. The next one with the hard-boiled egg in it. Yes, that one. Fried or boiled potatoes, corn or stewed tomatoes. Uh, no potatoes. Plenty of starch in the bread. Uh, how about a good helping of cream spinach instead? Mac, if you got an order a la carte, why don't you go to the Waldorf for the 21? <laughs> well, I'll take you to either one of them someday, is my guess. Yeah, I'll hold my breath. Okay, spinach. Now, corn or stewed tomatoes? Stewed tomatoes. Uh, what's that you're putting on? Gelatin salad comes with it. Uh, no, thanks. Let's trade for a dab of those cooked carrots, okay? Now, look, They're Frank. probably cheaper than the salad. You're saving money for the management. That's what I'm interested in. Okay, but don't ask me for no Charlotte rules. There you are, Mac. Very good. Very well-balanced dinner. Yeah, not bad for 42 cents. Not bad at all. I may continue to give you my patronage when I'm in the neighborhood. The March 1956 issue of Harper's Magazine featured a short story by Edmund G. Love about a man named Henry Shelby. He'd been living on the streets of New York since 1953. Shelby was a college-educated man who sought to live as civilized and normal a life as possible, while remaining purposely destitute. Love himself had been sleeping on subway trains throughout the 1950s, encountering many unique individuals. William N. Robeson directed, and Byron Kane starred. If I might tell you an X-rated radio show that I did, it was Arch Obler's Lights Out, featured Agnes Moorhead and a man named Wally Mayer, and I had a supporting part. I was a scientist, as I often was a scientist. We had an East Coast and a West Coast program. We on the uh, West Coast would do a show, for instance, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon so that it could be heard at 8 o'clock in the evening on the East Coast, and then three hours later we would have to do it at 8 o'clock live again for the West Coast. And conversely, people who did shows in New York would do shows at 12 midnight, so it would reach the West Coast at 9 o'clock. Now that was their repeat live show. I emphasize live as I go back to the Lights Out experience. Now this was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and the story this particular day was a giant chemical that had gotten loose. Lights out, as Arch Obler shows are always scary and horrific in science fiction. And a giant chemical had gotten out somehow, and huge holes in the countryside developed. So, this one scene involving Agnes Moorhead and Wally Mayer and myself was a group of scientists coming to this series of holes. We looked at it, and my line was, hmm, that's a strange chemical reaction. <laughs> This is live. So we are, we're on the air, and on comes the scene, and now is my line. Now, Agnes is standing right in front of me, facing me. The booth is here, and I'm standing here. Wally is there. Agnes is right here, and I'm standing opposite. This is 44 Mike, and my line is dialogue, dialogue, line, and then my line is, hmm, that's a strange chemical erection. <laughs> <laughs> And I looked across the mic at her, and I mouthed, Did I say that? And Agnes nodded. And I looked to my right, and in the booth, nobody was in the booth. They were all down on the floor. 
and it seemed like hours had occurred. It was only a second because naturally, the professionalism of Wally, whom I think had the next line, he immediately answered the line he should answer, and the people didn't know. And there was never a call from the East. Did I hear what I heard? Nothing. Because they may have thought they heard, and that's a strange chemical reaction. reaction. Three hours later, we had to go back and do it again live for the West Coast. And my hand was shaking like this, you know. But I did it, I did it right. Now that really happened. You've heard of other bloopers and you've heard of things for the past few years. That really happened. Thus the inner man is stoked, though perhaps not aesthetically satisfied, and always a walk between each refueling stop. The aesthetic hunger is assuaged along the way. There is the ever-changing kaleidoscope of Manhattan store windows, displaying their shiny wonders, their sturdy commonplaces, their exotic luxuries, their mundane necessities. There is a record of mankind's daily activities the world over, in a newspaper plucked from a trash basket, and there are benches and parks and public buildings where Henry Shelby may rest while he reads. There are pillared halls where paintings and sculpture may be viewed. Henry Shelby is a regular visitor to New York's many art galleries, but his favorite is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, if you'll follow me, we will view the museum's unrivaled collection of the works of Edward Degas. Edgar Degas. Edgar Hilaire Germain Degas. Oh? Oh, I'm sorry, madam. Oh, don't apologize, young man. That's very interesting. Degas worked chiefly in oil, although his renderings in pastel have achieved some fame. He wasn't a bad sculptor, either. Is that so? The oil to the immediate right and above is at the milliner's, and to the right of that and below is dancers practicing at the bar. Only the first one is a pastel, not an oil. This guide is new, I'd imagine. Uh, let's stay behind, Myrtle. This gentleman knows more about it than the guide does. Uh, you don't mind, do you, mister? No, not at all. They sort of hurry you through on the guided tours. Uh, now, uh, what about the one that's a pastel instead of an oil? Well, Degas' pastels, particularly his later ones, do have a deep, rich, almost oil-like texture. He applied the color in successive layers, fixing each tone or shade separately and using open lines to allow each undercoat to show through. Oh, well, I, I don't quite understand, but I, I see what you mean. Uh, are you an artist? No, although I'm planning to do some painting... Uh, sometime. Oh, well, my daughter's very artistic. Back in Chillicothe. Um, what's this one, that lady sitting with a big bouquet? That's an oil. It's called Woman with Chrysanthemums. Well, <laughs> that's a good name for it, isn't it? Yes, isn't it? <laughs> Say, if you aren't an artist, how do you know all these things? Oh, I spend a lot of time here, and I read a great deal. Oh, you certainly must. Goodness, you're a regular Billy Pearson. I beg your pardon? You know, the jockey on television. Oh, yes. I've read about him. Didn't he win $64,000 and then go on and tie with a fellow named Price for another sixty-four or something? Yeah, that's the one. Did you ever watch those programs? No, I can't say that I do. I'm afraid I don't have a television set. Yes, there's plenty of free culture and free entertainment to be found in New York City, even without a television set or a radio in your home even without a home. One of the most spectacular free entertainments in Manhattan is presented by the fire department. 
Henry Shelby always follows a fire engine, he generally gets to the fire, too. For the radius in which each engine company operates is small enough to permit even a pedestrian to arrive shortly after the equipment. Oh, this one is nothing. It's just a chemical job. They might as well have left the ladder truck back at the station. Now, you should have been at Amsterdam on 133rd the other day. I happen to be in the neighborhood at the time. There are the inevitable New York traffic accidents. Shelby has a nose for these and for straight fights, and he never leaves the scene until the last policeman has closed his notebook. And the parks and public squares are places where a man with a message may speak it forth within certain limits of subject matter. And that is to continue to eat the flesh of the animal. What mother nature intended us to nourish ourselves with grows in the ground? Henry Shelby stops to listen to every street corner orator he runs across, weighing bravely the ideas he hears. I can scarcely agree, but he does have a wonderfully resonant voice. There are the new buildings that constantly alter New York skyline. Our well-kempt vagrant knows every major construction project in town and shows up at the exact moment some critical problem is to be solved. No, 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 a little more to the right. Say, does it look to you as if they're placing that girder properly? It doesn't right now, but they'll raise it another three feet and then force it to the right with a cross member. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Actually, it's a different technique than we're accustomed to watching in the usual steel skeleton construction. Uh, seems to me there'll be too much strain on the cross member. No, I understand the alloy is both light enough and strong enough so that, in effect, they're employing a variant of the ancient Egyptian post and little method. Say, there are similarities, aren't there? You're engineer, I take it. No. Matter of fact, my master's was in economics. Is that so? I'm liberal arts myself. Yale, 28. Construction sort of hobby of mine. <laughs> Watching it at any rate. Mine too. So much so that I've done quite a bit of reading on it. Uh, there. You see what they're doing now? That's how they equalize the stresses. So they do. Uh, your office in the neighborhood? No, it isn't. I just happen to be passing this way. Uh, mine's just across the street, 230 Park. I'm H.J. Chisholm, Regal Paper Company. How do you do, sir? I'm Henry Shelby. Hello. You with the firm, or are you in business for yourself? Neither. I don't have a connection right now. Is that a fact? Well, if you're looking, why don't you stop by the office, whenever it suits you? We might very well have something for a chap like you. That's mighty nice of you, Mr. Chisholm. I'm not really looking at present, but I'll certainly remember you when I am. I wish you would. Say, wouldn't it save time and an extra piece of heavy equipment to haul those I-beams up on the construction elevator and then place them with one of those small hoists? It seems that it would at that. I think you have something there, Mr. Chisholm. And I'm going to look into it the next time I'm at the library. The Public Library. One of Henry Selby's favorite haunts. A fellow vagrant once advised him that the library was a good place to keep warm on a cold day. But he found it to be much more than that. On his first visit to the massive old building at 42nd and 5th Avenue, he asked for a copy of the New York Times for November 10th, 1936, and was referred politely to the microfilm room. Here you are, sir. Are you familiar with the operation of the viewing machine? Uh, not particularly. I'll be happy to show you. The entire edition is on this roll of film. You place it in the machine, attach the end, and thread it this way. 
close the machine, and turn the handle forward. Yes, it's fine. You sit right down here, use the headrest, and view the film through the aperture. Yes, I see. Very clear. And very comfortable. Yes, isn't it? It rather makes research a pleasure, doesn't it? I should say so. Uh, what if I fall asleep? Well, I'm afraid no one would awaken you if you did. There seem to be so few of you scholars taking advantage of our microfilm facilities. Just come to the desk if you wish additional roles. Say, how long has this been going on? Henry Shelby was asleep in 15 minutes and awoke undisturbed five hours later. For some time, the microfilm room was at the top of his list as a place of shelter. Then suddenly he realized it was a far more valuable place for pure entertainment. He has read all the issues of the Times available on film, all his favorite comic strips from the date of their inception, all the columns Damon Runyon ever wrote, and has even developed a system for playing the horses. One time, he worked long enough to accumulate $25, and with it, visited Aqueduct Racetrack. Now entering the winner's circle is Time You Told Me, written by Jockey Farrell Zufeld. The time for the mile and a sixteenth was 1.43 and 2. And the result of the eighth race is now official. 11.20 to win. Let's see, that makes me $87.40 ahead for the day after expenses. Well, how long has this been going on? Very prudently, Henry Shelby bought himself a new suit of clothes, leaving his original $25 untouched. A few days later, he visited Belmont Park and lost the entire sum. I still play the races in the microfilm room. During the winter, I study the preceding summer's entries, make my selections, and check them against the results in the following day's paper. I never look at the results in advance. Might just as well be honest about it. Featured in this episode was Alan Reed, famous as the voice of Fred Flintstone. Very shortly, the radio business emerged to the place where knowledge and quickness was very important to the director. He didn't have time to stop and teach a guy how to read a line or, or what to do because you were always fighting a, a time thing. I was in at the beginning and gotten the experience, and by the time radio started to get really big, I was there and working well, you, like you mad. You were quite versatile, and you were able to do all different kinds of voices, and that must well, have been valuable before the, uh, yes. the union days when you could double and triple and all that. True, true, true. I'm one of the founders mm -hmm. of the union. I don't know uh -huh. if you knew that. No. There were three of us, George uh -huh. Heller and John Brown and myself, and belonged to the Forum in Equity. We sat down and we started talking of the needs for a union. By this time, there were a lot of people working. In radio, from the beginning to the end, there was like a hierarchy. 90% of the work was done by 10% of the people, and of that 10% of the people, maybe 10% of them were always going, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was that. And it was due to the early start and friendships that were formed and uh, knowledge of the business. Everybody uh, threw his hand in in those days in many varying things. For instance, I was on one of the phones at CBS where we were working mostly then when Orson Welles had his War of the Worlds thing and everybody was at a phone. 
Yes, New York offers many diversions. There is the waterfront, the ferry boats, the slips where the huge liners dock. I come down here a couple of times a week. I always try to be around when the Mary or the Elizabeth are coming in. Now, what's that Weehawken ferry doing a quarter mile off her course? Just sightseeing, I'll bet. Or her captain ought to have his confounded papers picked up. Shelby enjoys the ferry boats, all of them, but his favorite is the Staten Island Ferry. There's nothing quite like it in the world. Outward bound from the battery, there's the thrill of passing the Statue of Liberty. And coming back, Miss Liberty welcomes you home as the incredible skyline of lower Manhattan hangs shimmering in the haze, like the pleasure dome of Kublai Khan. Where else can a poor man get such an ocean voyage for a dime? Of course, ten cents for one round trip does put the Staten Island Ferry in the luxury class. But during the rush hours, Shelby has discovered that he can board the Jersey Central Ferries across the Hudson and make three or four trips for the same dime without being noticed. This kills time and also furnishes amusement, for Shelby quietly enjoys criticizing the pilots who do not bring their vessels squarely into the slips. Among other things... Henry Shelby has become an expert on the management and conduct of New York Harbor. And uh, then there are the parades. New York City is the only place where there is a parade of some sort every day. That's one of the reasons Henry Shelby is happier here than he would be in any other city in the world. I just love band music. By last Armistice Day, I saw five different parades and even marched in one. I carried the front end of the bass drum and got $3 for doing it. So the patternless pattern of Henry Shelby's days and the days of perhaps thousands like him, men who choose to work only enough to maintain a bare thread of personal existence in a society that clamors for workers and rewards them with possessions and security and the same comfortable resting place each nightfall. Where does Henry Shelby sleep? A clean hotel bed is a once-a-month extravagance to him. Perhaps he trudges to the Pennsylvania station and boards an 8th Avenue subway train at about 1 o'clock in the morning. That's why his cash minimum is 15 cents, the price of a subway token. He settles himself in the almost empty front car and drops off to sleep. He awakens before he reaches the end of the line, has a smoke, boards another train, and sleeps to the other end of the line. He has several standard trips mapped out, J Street to Queens, back to the Brooklyn end of the line, up to the tip of Manhattan, back to Penn Station. In five hours, he has probably netted four hours sleep. He has learned the habits of the transportation police, and he tries to keep himself from becoming too familiar a figure. That's why I use the subway maybe only every other night, or not quite that often. In warm weather, there are fire escapes, some of them covered, and Central Park and Prospect Park. And when it's really hot, there are the beaches. No one ever bothers you there. Always plenty of legitimate sleepers trying to beat the heat. When it rains and when the New York winter comes, there are other carefully cataloged places for shelter and a few hours sleep. Grand Central, Penn Station, the Port Authority bus terminal, hotel lobbies. There are rules of conduct for each, and Henry Shelby knows and observes them all. On rare occasions, he's questioned, but he always has the answers. Come on there, mister. Hmm? 
Come on, wake up. Up, uh, up, up. Oh. oh, well. I certainly dozed off, didn't I, officer? You certainly did. You think this is a flop house? Of course not. It's very obviously Grand Central Terminal. That it is, and we don't allow bums to lap their ribs in here. Bums? I ought to resent that, officer. Well, resent it all you like. Seems to me I've seen you in here before. Well, that's quite possible. I take the two o'clock local for Poughkeepsie almost every night. I missed it tonight, so I'm waiting for the next train. Uh, 6-5, I believe it is. It is. Can you prove you're not a vag? A what? A vagrant. You got any money on you? Why, yes. Uh, let me see. Six, seven, eight dollars. And here's my ticket to Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd better get going, mister, or you'll miss your train. What? Yes, it's two minutes after six. Oh, I had no idea. I nearly overslept. That you did. Thank you so much for wakening me. Not at all. That's what I'm here for. Yes. Well, I must say you're right on the job. You bet I am. That's gate nine, mister, the Poughkeepsie local. Yes. Well, I don't want to miss it this time. No, you don't. You made a fairly easy transition from radio to television. You were on the TV version of Luigi. Well, yes, but... And I'd done some TV mm -hmm. before that. But it wasn't uh, the kind of transition that I wanted. And I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. I had spent most of my time in radio doing... For eight or ten years, I did an average of 35 programs a week. Wow. And... and the money was very good, mm -hmm. and with money you acquire responsibilities. And and coming into television, you can only do one, at most two, programs mm -hmm. a week. And I hadn't built enough of a name to be the star of a show where the money would be comparable. So I decided that I better have something else going because I had a big home and family mm -hmm. and supports and schools and things like that. And I started a business in especially advertising. This is 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. My son is running the business today. It was quite successful, and uh, my son has made it even more so. My youngest son has it, and uh, I've retired. From that business, but not from showbiz. <laughs> well, the only thing I do are uh -huh. Flintstone or Flintstone-connected things now, and that is commercials. So, for the first time, Henry Shelby had to take the train for Poughkeepsie under the suspicious glare of the railroad cop. But the ticket was never punched, for he got off the train at 125th Street to begin another day of Manhattan meandering. Henry Shelby is never without three tickets. One to Poughkeepsie, one to Princeton, and the third to Elizabeth, New Jersey. His operating equipment for sleeping in the three major terminals. Why does this strangely bewildered, yet far from hopeless man, live apart from responsibility and the place he could so easily regain in working society? How many weeks, or months, or years will he continue to walk the streets of Manhattan? I don't know how long I'll live this life. I don't have much trouble. I've never gotten drunk and lain in a doorway all day. I've never been on a police blotter. I've never had to beg. Things seem so easy and natural, just as though they were supposed to be this way. I'm not going to look at the future. All I know now is that at six o'clock, I'm going to be at a little delicatessen up on Broadway where they serve a mighty fine boiled beef dinner for 68 cents. And I'd better get going. 
Takes me almost an hour to walk it. Why don't I take the subway? Why, subways are for sleeping. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in Hollywood by William N. Robeson and was tonight directed by Mr. Robeson. Subways Are for Sleeping was based on the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love and was adapted for the workshop by Fran Van Hartisfeld. Henry Shelby was played by Byron Kane and the narrator was William Keneally. Also heard in the cast were Sarah Selby, Helene Burke, Edwin Bruce, Frank Gerstel, Court Falkenberg, Tony Barrett, Ted Bliss, and Alan Reed. The original score was composed and conducted by Fred Steiner. Next week, from New York, the workshop will present Only Johnny Knows, a survey of child training from the birds and the bees era of wonderful innocence a century ago to the complex and guilt era of today's psychiatric sophistication. Brilliant performance of the rarely played Symphony No. 6 in D minor by Jan Sibelius with Nils Erik Fugstad conducting the Sibelius Festival Orchestra is yours for the listening this Sunday when World Music Festivals comes your way on most of these same stations. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed over most of these same stations by My Son Jeep. America listens most to the CBS radio network. American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra, 11-piece orchestra, an 8-piece orchestra, to a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey, or you can automate the whole day's programming. And you have a newsman and a disc jockey and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up. They miss the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Well, they miss the beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. That tube is up there. You don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You've made the step to television. You can't go back to radio. Bill Frug stayed with the CBS Radio Workshop until 1957. Afterwards, Anthony Ellis took over Hollywood's production. 
Paul Roberts was the man in New York. There were many high spots over the next two seasons. Shakespeare was interviewed. Stan Freeberg gave an analysis of satire. The microphone visited both inner and outer space, going on journeys to Venus, while Elliot Lewis offered a show about the nightmares of a man in a coma. CBS Radio presents the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. This is Elliot Lewis. I believe there's a place for experimental drama in radio. CBS Radio also believes this, hence the Radio Workshop. The play you're going to hear is such an experiment. It's debatable whether it's too personal an experience. I don't think it is, and CBS Radio has been kind enough to give me the time to find out. Some of you may be offended, some revolted, some excited by the sharing of this experience. At all events, since it is an experiment, and since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention. The play is called Nightmare. Are you all right? Johnny? Johnny? I'm tired. I'm so tired. Well, what was it? Are you all right? Fine. Just felt a little sick. I'm tired. I'll call Dr. Rogers. Oh, it's late. Let the poor man sleep. Call him in the morning if I don't feel better. You sure? Sure. Just want to sleep. If you're in creative control, you have to be in creative control. Whatever happened, I'm, ha I'm pleased that the Sears thing worked. But my letter of agreement said I was in complete and absolute creative control of everything. I got a note from them once, and they said, kill this script. One note happened once. And I called them back and said, you can't say kill this script. You have to tell me why. You know, this is not something that we just make up. You can't work that way. So at a meeting, I explained to them that there are only really three precious things in that business. And the first was the idea and the second was time, and the third was money. And if they had a script there, and they said, kill the script, they weren't observing any of the three things. There was some reason. There's nothing wrong with tearing down a fence. But the wise man will first inquire why it was put up, because it may be that there's no longer a reason for the fence. But it may also be, if you don't ask the question, that you're letting loose a bunch of saber-toothed tigers, you know. <laughs> So, ask the question. On Sunday, September 22, 1957, with no national sponsorship forthcoming, the CBS Radio Workshop went off the air with a play called Young Man Axelrod. The following week, indictment replaced the 4.05 p.m. broadcast, closing down the workshop forever. And I didn't want to go on television, but I knew my job was vanishing. But I really knew it was vanishing. After I left and took a job at Screen Gems as a writer-producer, they never replaced me. I was the last vice president of CBS Radio. <laughs> well. We've come to the end of the CBS Radio Workshop, and we've spent the past three episodes largely at CBS, but that's about to change.
Monitor. 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 2000 hours Greenwich Mean Time. This is Monitor, reporting the nation and the world. The combined radio and television networks of the National Broadcasting Company bring you the premier broadcast of Monitor. The new NBC radio service originating from NBC's Electronic Communication Center, Radio Central New York. Now to introduce Monitor to America, here is the president of the National Broadcasting Company, Mr. Sylvester L. Weaver. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's June of 1955, and NBC's president, Pat Weaver, is about to rebrand the weekend format. This is a preview which will be seen on television for the next hour, and it'll be heard on radio until midnight tonight, New York time. Weaver felt that broadcasting could educate as well as entertain, especially in the vignette form. He'll prove this concept with one of the most experimental ideas in radio history, filling the air with news, actualities, remotes, comedy, and variety. It was a concept so successful that the show remained on the air in some form or fashion until 1974. It was called Monitor, and we'll find out how it came to be. Where the items are as long as they need to be, or as short. Well, over a weekend, there'll be a half a hundred people serving you from Radio Central here. And among them, and here today for you to meet, are Dave Garraway and Bob and Ray, Morgan Beatty, Walter Kiernan, Clifton Fadiman, Ben Grauer, and many, many others. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and the New York Daily News. On the interview front, Lillian Bayef, Don Diamond, John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Bill Frug, Jack Johnstone, Byron Kane, Elliot Lewis, and Peggy Weber were with Spurvac. For more information, go to Spurvac.com. Norman Corwin, Virginia Gregg, Carlton E. Morse, Alan Reed, and Russell Thorson spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Bill Robeson spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran from WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear this full interview at goldenage-wtic.org. William Paley spoke while receiving a citation in November of 1958. And Ray Bradbury was interviewed by Jerry Hendiges in October of 1976. Selected music featured in today's episode was My Prayer by the Platters, The Poor People of Paris by Nelson Riddle, and The Big Heist by Barney Kessel. Well, uh, we have yourself, sir. Well, now, let's uh, <laughs> steady. Let's talk about what we've really got. Well, not to mention uh, President Pusey of Harvard and... Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. And here are those headlines from Bonn. West German Chancellor Adenauer is flying to... Special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendiges, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network.
Breaking Walls, episode 116, will focus on the launch of NBC's Monitor in June of 1955. We'll hear explanations, stories, and show clips from this groundbreaking radio experiment. This episode will be available beginning June 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until June 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 115. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Which many, many hours of exciting racing will, I do not think, dispel. This is Raymond Baxter in Le Mans. Uh, that was Raymond Baxter of the BBC at Le Mans, a moment after the tragedy occurred this weekend. That was almost, I suppose, 20 hours ago. Uh, it's now just past 4 o'clock in New York City. Hello, Paris. Hello, Frank. Bergholzer. Hello, Jim Fleming. Uh, what's the latest toll in this tragedy at Le Mans? The latest toll, not completely accurate, but the best we can get from the reports gathered from various hospitals.